Ladies and gentlemen, today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Onnit. Onnit is a health and wellness optimization company. They're a long-term sponsor of the podcast. I have been using their products well before I had a professional relationship with them when it comes to the podcast and their sponsorship. And if you go to Onnit, O-N-N-I-T dot com slash hot, you are going to arrive at the cleared hot landing page and you'll know that you're at the right place because you're going to see the podcast artwork staring you in the face. They have a variety of things there for you. They have information, whether you like it in the audio format or the video format, or you just want to read it, knock yourself out. It's all there. They have apparel, they have gym equipment, and they also have a variety of supplements If you scroll through the landing page, you're going to see some of the ones I routinely use and I talk about often, the Alpha Brain, which is a nootropic for an enhancement in memory, and I would say cognitive focus as well. There's also the Total Human Packs, day and night, a complete package that you just take in the morning and evening time, gives you everything that you might need. The MCT oil, and if you dig a little bit deeper into there, you're going to find a lot of the other stuff that I like too. They have a cool selection of beef jerkies, they have protein bites, they have probably just about anything you're looking for. They don't have tacos. So if you're looking for tacos, they don't have those. But if you're interested in dialing in the micronutrient side of the house, and like I say all the time, focus on the macro first before you spend any money on the micro. So your recovery, your training, and your diet, then start dialing in the micro. Go to onnit.com slash hot, and you're going to get 10% off your first order. So give it a look if you would. Today's episode is with a very interesting individual that I first heard of on the Joe Rogan podcast. And thankfully, Joe is the great connector. And he recommended that John and I get in touch. So today's guest is named John Norris. He was recently retired, but served as a game warden with the California, California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Now, when I heard him on Joe's podcast and I hear Game Warden, I was shocked throughout the entire episode of what he was actually doing in the day-to-day activities of his job. John went very deep, I think, in what could be called a atypical route inside of the Game Warden service. He co-developed a, a team that they called MET, Marijuana Enforcement Team, and their Delta team, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, first comprehend, uh, comprehensive wild, wilderness special operations tactical and sniper unit. When you think game warden, I don't know how many people, I didn't think wilderness special operations tactical and sniper unit. And again, this was aimed at combating the cartel's influence in the marijuana growing operations, and then from that, the decimation of the California wildlife and the resources. John was at the spearhead of this, and I am not even going to attempt to describe what it is that he did and the execution of his old job. I'm just going to let him do it. So please enjoy today's episode. Like I called it, it's coming out on Tuesday. We'll be back on track next Monday. But until then, enjoy this episode with John Norris. Okay, got the red smoke. Gun run, north and south, west of the smoke, west of the smoke. Okay, copy. West of the smoke. I'm looking at danger close now. Oh, wait a minute. Give it to me. I made it. Get cleared hot. Copy, cleared hot. I already hit the button. Actually, okay. I just <laughs> hit the button, so we just started. All right. I'm pumped that you're here. Super cool to be here, Andy. Good yeah, we have, uh, we have, God, we have so much to talk about. Uh, 
let alone the fact that we grew up probably 30 miles from each other. Right, that's well, crazy. It is crazy. But you know what that's happened to me more often than not? Really? Even though I don't consider Santa Cruz to be Northern California. I, right. I looked at a map and I find it to be directly in the middle. But people call it NorCal. Right. There's a lot of uh, connections <laughs> from NorCal. Yeah. You Did you grow up in the Silicon Valley? I did. I literally grew up in South San Jose. So Morgan Hill, yep. San Martin, the whole Gilroy, the garlic capital. Probably, yeah. Probably smell it in my pores still. It's yes. only been a year since I've been up here, you know, full time. But yeah, not far from you. Spent a lot of time in Santa Cruz, you know, on the boardwalk, on the gonna, beach, in the water. <laughs> Dude, it's crazy that we're both from there. And, and most of the career in that area as well. So... It's amazing. Uh, so I listened to your podcast with Joe, and I've always found that the best way to start off is just to let you introduce yourself, because sure. the odds of me just completely murdering it right. <laughs> are exceptionally high, almost gotcha. guaranteed. Okay, right So on. I'll let you uh, give me an intro, and then we're just going to dive right in. Okay. Yeah, my name's John Norris, Jr. I'm a very recently retired lieutenant with California Department of Fish and Wildlife in our old state. Um had a pretty amazing career, you know, a really blessed one, real diverse one. Started back in 1992 um, down in Riverside County. Yep. You know, kind of the SoCal LA Basin area, the Inland Empire actually, and uh, started patrol down there. And then eventually worked back up to the Silicon Valley, which was home. So about 95, I got back in my home area. And I was doing game warden work in my home area, which was fantastic. All the areas I learned to hunt, hike, the Santa Cruz Mountains, (laughs) mountain biking and hiking where you and I learned. And then Henry Coast State Park, you know, just over the hill. Yeah. I mean, that's where I met a game warden, you know, and got inspired to even do the job um, and learned all my backpacking skills in there, even as I was becoming a hunter at at a youthful age. And then to go back there in 95 and be the game warden on patrol now was kind of a dream, kind of back in the hometown, you know. Yeah. And spent the majority of the next 13 years right there. In 2005, I promoted to lieutenant, so I was supervising a squad of about seven game wardens, uh, two and a half counties, had all of San Benito, Santa Clara, uh, a little bit of Monterey County, um, and then just, just kept you know doing all the traditional game warden stuff, the hunting and the fishing enforcement, stream bed alteration, the environmental crime. Um, something we love to do as hunters, I'm sure you'll relate to, is the whole hunter, hunter education thing. Yep outreach and teaching kids. I mean, just, just having a ball doing all that, you know, um, traditional stuff. And then in 2004, when I found that first, you know, Mexican cartel poison cannabis grow right on the edge of Henry Co park, everything took a, you know, just a complete 90 degree shift. And we went into a very unconventional, you know, area for game wardens to go and then spent, uh, you know, the rest of my career in special operations, developing a one-off team that we haven't had in the country yet, as far as game wardens go, Strictly is a special operations force dedicated to fighting that type of threat, both environmentally, you know, as dangerous as those guys are, mm-hmm. um, and also the destructive nature of what they're doing to our wildlife and waterways and, and our wildlands. Just horrible stuff. And yeah. I, I got to be honest, I was completely blown away. And for those of you who are listening to this, I would recommend going back and listening to your episode with uh, Rogan because it was it was blowing my mind consistently. Yeah, I didn't know a lot about uh, game wardens. I mean, if you listen to most people, they're like, stay away from them. Yeah. Which <laughs> uh, I met one through Dudley in Iowa. He was awesome. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure it de- probably depends on the interaction you have with sure. the game warden and how you interact with them. Yeah. But I was amazed at the, I guess the term would be the authorities that a warden has that I had no idea. The scope and roles and responsibilities. So. Could you explain even how you become a warden and the pipeline that you go through and then kind of an overarching explanation sure. of the roles and responsibilities? Because I suspect most people have no idea how broad it is. Yeah, it, it's crazy how little people know, like you're saying. 
Andy, when you get to the game warden profession, because really there's not a lot of us, you know, in the nation, much less each individual state. I've encountered zero so far in three years hunting, other than, like I said, Dudley's game warden in Iowa. I have yeah. yet to run into one in the field or to check a tag. So I know they're out there. They're out there, but they're just, you know, <laughs> where's the unicorn, right? Yeah. And that's why we, we, we talk about the thin green line. You heard me say it on Joe's podcast, you yep. know, and I talk about the thin green line being so thin. Um, obviously public lands, you know, are getting hit by so many more people. The population has boomed in the nation. I mean, since I was the start of my career in 92, what has the population in California done? I mean, it's just skyrocketing in the, in the other parts of the country. So you don't often see game wardens. Um, when you do, it's, it's, you know, kind of stressful and unnerving, even if everything's totally legal, right? Are we in trouble? Yeah. But the thing about it is it's interesting is. Game wardens are just like you and I as hunters. I mean, we love to see guys like you and me. Like, if I'm going to go check you and you're in an elk camp, you know, and you just got your first bow kill on a big bull, congratulations, man, that was epic. And what was going on on that, that, that big bull uh, we, we were uh, dialoguing on before the show, if I came into that camp, it would be a celebration. You know, you guys are squared away. Yep. Everything's legal. You're stewards of conservation. You're out there because of reach and public access and so many people tuning into what, all, what we're all doing we're spreading that conservation message so much more broader in a positive way. And even if you're not a hunter, you know, and you're a preservationist, animal rights, whatever the case may be, and I, you know, talk to both groups to educate equally, um, it puts a positive light on what we're doing as conservationists, why it's so critical to keeping our wildlife species going. So um, as far as contacting a guy like you or a legal ethical hunter, it's not adversarial at all. Allies, eyes and ears, yeah. force multipliers, like you and I would say from, from you know, operational work. Um, but there's that one in a thousand <laughs> that's 20 miles in the backcountry. Yeah. He's a felon, you know, in possession of like an AK-47. Has a huge Which is a great hunting rifle, yeah, by the way. Fantastic. Yeah, it's yeah. really you steal core ammo, man. Just go to work, man, like, like, like Taliban, right? Yeah. So that's the thing that gets so crazy in games. We've got to come up. We've got to come up against that. And a lot of times it's a game where you got to do it alone. You don't have backup. You're in your truck by yourself. You might have your patrol dog, a canine. I might have my yellow lab Apollo with me, you know, and she's a sniff dog. She's not going to bite anybody. Mm. But that's it, you know. So game wardens have the unique, um, the unique requirements on their job to be able to sort through hellacious circumstances by themselves without any support. It's kind of sound familiar, right, yep. from the old team days. And that's what game wardens do domestically. And, you know, we try to double up. We try to get backup. But... We're so thin on a deer opener or an elk season or whatever, we can't combine forces that much or we can't cover that much ground. Um, becoming a game warden isn't a real easy process. As an example, when I was hired in 1992, being a white male, and even though I had great grades, you know, I had the criminal justice degree, I was um, finished my bachelor's at San Jose State, was in my master's program waiting to get hired by Fish and Wildlife. And because I was a white male and I didn't have veteran preference points because I wasn't in the military, mm-hmm. it was a long wait. You know, and there were, we had like about 300 game wardens at the time in the state. And we get like 10,000 applicants a year for oh, the wow. job. How many openings per year on average? Um, four or five, maybe. Yeah. So and the maybe, odds, and the some odds years, are not in your favor. They're not in your favor. And some years you'll go with, we weren't hiring anybody. So from about 1989 to 92, there was a big hiring freeze, recession stuff going on. And they weren't hiring anybody. So they were stacking people up on the list. And just because myself and three other civilian guys scored high enough on all the testing, we got in with some military veterans that have preference points and some guys already with law enforcement 
state law enforcement jobs like lifeguards and state park guys down in you know San Diego, Southern California. I got into that academy just by you know the sheer numbers of just lucking out. So it's tough to get into. Educational requirements are you know not overly stringent, but usually it's a bachelor's in a criminal justice or wildlife science or an, or an associate's. But it's everything else we go through in a police academy. We is it a separate? academy for wardens or do you pipeline through the leo type academies now they're all our own Um, back then i was i was actually the fourth academy of having our own in 92 and so most states are that way now where you have your own fish and game academy specifically to be a game warden but in that academy you do the full six months that the california highway patrol would do or Mm -hmm. san jose police or you know lincoln county or flathead county sheriffs so you get all of that stuff because you've got to be a mainline law enforcement officer and protect everything and enforce everything and then you do anywhere between six and eight weeks of what we call you know game warden specific training that's wildlife forensics wildlife id um, weapons familiarization and instead of just learning a few weapons like we might to operate as a cop we're going to learn hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of systems because we might run across a crazy old mauser bolt gun an ak you might see this you know our archaic old, you know, antique rifle and you got to unload it. You got to handle it safely and yep. you got to know what you're up against if it turns, if it turns crazy. So we go through all of that training as well before we get kicked out. So the training is pretty stringent and you're very diversely trained to kind of handle everything. Do you, at the end of that, I'm just thinking with the, my law enforcement buddies that I have, they have that pretty robust period after an academy where they have their FTO, their field training officer. Yep. Do you guys get that or are you so thinly staff that it's like, congratulations, John, here's your district. (laughs) Well, here's what's funny, Andy. I'll date myself a little bit, but my mentors, you know, the guys that I grew up kind of idolizing as I was going through training were all FTOs. But when they started 20 years before, it was like, you get to the academy and they go, okay, jump in the truck. You jump in like a captain. Here's a code that's about this thick, maybe a hundred regulations. Here's a six gun, a sedan, to go off road. Good luck with that. Perfect. And then you just go learn, you know, and it's, it's trial by fire. It's crazy. <laughs> but when I got in, there was a real stringent FTO program that had just kind of started. And that was where we would, you know, provided you graduate and make all the, you know, all the, all the cuts, all the curriculum, pass all the tests. Now we're going to go with a different trainer in all different parts of the state for a month each. And we're going to do three of them. So I was on the coast in Fort Bragg, Mm -hmm. North Coast, right, working with a warden named Bob Cusera, who's an amazing marine expert, great off water, you know, know, offshore. And I had done some of that, but I had not done extensive offshore work, either recreationally or professionally. So I learned a ton. I was just like out of my element and learned a lot with him. And he really kind of kicked my butt on getting it right. And then I ended up in the Eastern Sierras with a guy named John Ortman. And he was just, I mean, legendary. You know, he came and did you know, stress inspections during our academy. And I got to know this guy through my TAC officer. And I went, oh man, you know, a little intimidating. This guy's all that, right? <laughs> and I got to do this, you know, like the, the X1C, all the C-zone openers at like 12, 13,000 feet oh, wow. on the White Mountains bordering Nevada. All those deer seasons were going on, working spotlighters in that, you know, that the Eastern Sierras. It was amazing. So I got a good diverse training and most everybody in the state now do at least three if they're having problems, they might do another one. Okay. And they're a month long and they're spread out. And that way, when you hit the ground as a quote unquote solo warden and you've passed all of those FTO program requirements, you're pretty likely to make it through probation for your first year because you've been evaluated in every category. We have like, you know, 26 to 30 categorical ratings with a bunch of narration daily for 30 days. So, you know, the stress is kind of incredible yeah. for a trainer being an FTO myself. I train like eight cadets as a training officer before I promoted. Um, 
you know, that's, that's their time. You know, it's just like going through our basic training when we start. So we're diving in as hard as the trainee is, and we really want them to succeed unless there's a critical issue where they shouldn't. That's an un- unbelievable knowledge base. I forget because I'm not a avid fisher that you guys are also responsible for the Got to do that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I think uh warden, I'm just thinking, Oh yeah, it's going to be uh you know, we're a landlocked animal. And right. Yeah. I forget you have to have all that knowledge too. You know, last year talking about the conservation, I don't know. So we were at the same camp. Um, it actually, it was tied directly into that bull that's on the wall. Nice. Which I killed on nine 11. So his name's Bin Laden. Obviously. Bin Laden. I like it, man. Yeah. <laughs> He's gorgeous. And, yeah. Uh, killed him late in the night. Okay. Uh, and we wanted to bring more horsepower in, man-packed horsepower, basically another buddy, uh, the next day. So quartered, hung it, back straps, center lines, took out everything we could take in a really big backpack. Nice. Got back out. We went back up the next morning, and Dudley saw a flash of a brown bear taking off oh, from man. the you gut pile. Got, yeah, yeah. He found it. Yeah. He did, and... It was in an area where there had been grizz in the past, but they hadn't been seen in over 100 years. And I don't know exactly, I don't know if it was Dudley or Barklow that communicated, but it somehow got back. And I don't know if it was a warden that showed up or somebody that was a somehow tied into the conservation, uh, but a guy showed up on a four-wheeler when we were back in camp and asked if we would go put a trail camera back up on the nice. gut pile, which... I'm not a huge fan of grizzly bears, to be totally honest yeah, with you. Um, yeah. Not when they're on a gut pile near you, me I've either. I've <laughs> only had uh, some sporadic encounters. It's very interesting. In my, my limited hunting experience, black bears, my level of comfort with them is okay. Because right. every time I see them and I'll yeah. make some noise, they take off. Yeah. The two times that I've seen a grizz, I immediately realized who was in charge of that situation. And it was not me. <laughs> right. The aura that they put out was just oh, man, instantaneous intense. alpha. Yep. So <laughs> we agreed to go back up in the interest of trying to see whether yeah. or not the grizz has come back in. And it was just, and again, it, it might well have actually been the game warden for that area. But either way, it was really cool to just, in the interest, not in an interest of hunting at all. It was no benefit to us because we had come out, taken everything out. We had quartered it, hiked it out the next day. It was the day after. Yeah. And when we got back up there again, it was buried, which it wasn't, hadn't been the day before. Yep. Got a camera up there and then got the hell out of Dodge. <laughs> yeah, you know, when, they, when they're on a kill like that yep. and they're kind of taking territory and they're, they're staking a claim, that's a tough go. You know, and, and now in our state of Montana, we have brown bear all yep. over the place. And up in the northwest corner, without going too specifics, which we'll yep. share you know, <laughs> off the broadcast. Off line, yeah. But um, we've got so much brown bear now dumped into that area. Problem bears from Glacier, you know, right in my hunting holes where I'm, I'm putting trail cameras out yesterday. Getting yep. ready for the big fall season. And, you know, adequate weapon, watch your six, you don't oh, know. And getting an I animal down. I went in there down, with some substantially more firepower when we right? went back up. I'll say one of the three of us was far less pumped to go up there. I won't name any names. People can take a guess. <laughs> I can take a guess on that. Yeah, and it ended up being uh, color-phased. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yo. So, yeah. Well, we didn't find out till much later. Yeah. But I just was thinking when you were talking about the conservation piece and being a steward, like I said, we took – Half of a day to go do yep. that, just in the interest of gathering information, so people they could determine whether or not the grizz had migrated back because it was near White Sulphur. Okay, I want to say it's the Cascade Mountain Range, but I, I think that's wrong. I don't have that much time out there, but it was the mountain ranges that was like southeast of uh, White Sulphur, White Castle. Yeah, I know your. Yeah, yeah, I know that range. The grizz gorgeous country. It's and, and, and amazing. Active in black, you know, brown bear, like you said. Yeah, yeah, and it was. Uh, <laughs> oh man, it was hilarious when we put the camera up. 
just looking around, and like I said, one of the three of us was <laughs> little, far less... Little perimeter. <laughs> one of the three of us was far less pumped to be there. Yeah. Well, if you have to share that conversation with him when the time's right. I will. Yeah. So when you got into uh, being the game warden, obviously, again, I was fascinated by listening to you talk with Joe. The things that you did in the tail end of your career, I would yeah. never have associated with the role and responsibility of game warden. Crazy. Yeah. And I know we'll get into that. So how before it shifted into that, though... How did you, was being a game warden what you thought it would be? Uh, it was it was more. It was more challenging, honestly, brother. It was, there was so much more to the job, you know, than I than I entailed and, and, and really thought about. When, I'll take it back to the FTO program, I was so overwhelmed with all the responsibilities that we had to do in the traditional world. Let's, before we get into the special operations stuff and that cartel threat mm-hmm. that, we're, that we're alluding to, um, just going out and being an effective game warden, like taking on spotlighters at night. The big thing in the academy was, to make yourself, you know, to make to become that game warden that has that type of reputation of being a hardcore go-getter, going to go after a real poacher, not someone that just forgets their fishing license and you walk up out of the truck, you're high visibility. Yep. Oh, yeah, you know, you write them a ticket, they don't have their license or, you know, a couple undersized fish, whatever. Important issues, got to educate. Sometimes you cite, sometimes you don't. I wanted to go get the guys that were really intentional. I mean, obviously being a hunter since I was like nine years old, my dad put me through hunter safety. I really valued the law, you know, even before I knew about the job. I mm-hmm. wanted to do it right. You, we, you talk conservation stewardship, what we all are, and how much we love to be out there. And we'll hump our butts out there harder to make sure we take every piece of meat, educate people. Oh, we, you're not leaving it behind. If, no, no, no. <laughs> if you not, sourced it yourself. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> like, hey, 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 scrape that off. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, that's stew meat, man. <laughs> yeah. I can get yeah. a lot out of boning that yeah, out. I got room in my backpack. <laughs> I'll take breaks. It's fine. Put yeah. it in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But my thing was I wanted to go after the guys that were intentional. Like, they knew where the game Warden was living. They knew how to outsmart him or her. Um, they would go out at night behind lock gates and private ranches and kill trophy bucks out of season, or they'd throw bait down and just bring in massive amounts of deer that don't even belong in the area. So they're not only, you know, they're not only killing deer illegally over bait, maybe in or out of season or after dark, but they're actually changing the biodiversity, the actual herd dynamics of that species. And coming from, I mean, the first deer I ever harvested as like a 14-year-old kid was a blacktail coastal buck where you and I grew up. That's awesome. And just a little crab claw fork that I worked my butt <laughs> off and I got buck fever so much I shook and I kind of shot him, you know, a little far back and yep. I had to track him, but fortunately it all worked out. And how much I just respected that process. And when I had that deer meat and harvested it and prepared it and we had meat for a year and the family, I mean, such a rite of passage, you know, and I, I look at it as a privilege as, as everybody should that ethically hunts, you know, being the conservation model. Um, but to think guys were going out there and just cheating, by throwing truckloads of bait, you know, behind a lock gate that they, they, they never think they're going to get checked. Yeah. And they're bringing in these monster 22, 24-inch four points. I mean, a buck you and I in California would dream and wait a lifetime to do legally. And there's six of them eating on the pile in yeah. one, on one ranch. And it's like, well, that's the genetics for six bucks that should be spread out over maybe as much as six miles, making that herd so much better. And what would are they, they take doing? on six of them too? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and what they'll do is they'll just selectively wait and they'll, you know, they'll work over the bait. So... That, that became kind of the specialty when I got back to Silicon Valley after three years of being on the job. And I started to find these cases. And they were tough as heck to make because ultimately you got to get into an area that you got eyes on everything. And these guys know the game warden's truck, so we're having to sneak in covertly, doing a lot on foot, just like a backpack do-it-yourself elk yep. hunt. Make a hide, hide on a border, use stealth, field craft, camouflage to get in and surveil and watch sometimes you know, 
24 hours, sometimes six weeks. It just depended. And my first big baiting case was in 1995. It was my first full year back in uh, the Silicon Valley. And uh, the warden that had vacated that area tipped me off to a, a guy that was baiting for like 18 years. And he was this really wealthy farmer from San Jose, a multimillionaire that would bring coal peppers from his agricultural <laughs> operation, these bell peppers. And Andy, I had no idea that bell peppers... They're like candy, man. They're Are like they? Tootsie Rolls to freaking deer, yeah. See, if so, you would have let me guess 10 things that deer wanted, I wouldn't have said bell peppers. No, you'd think roses, succulents, berries, well, whatever. Corn. Corn. Yeah, yeah. something main, you know, Midwest. Yeah. So this guy was bringing up literally tons and tons of cold peppers. He'd been doing it for 18 years and never been caught. So as crazy as this sounds on this story, this guy would come up, He'd put out scouts to look on the roads. They'd glass for wardens or any type of law enforcement because they know they, they've been watched periodically, but they've never been caught. And then they'd, get in the gate, they'd go through their gate. They'd dump in five different places. And they'd leave. And I'd just watch. I mean, this was like, you know, Dr. Doolittle's game farm, man. All these. Start to see the heads yeah, pick up. And yeah, it was like a whitetail farm from the Midwest just coming in and going in. And they were so conditioned to this bait being there artificially, they would start to migrate, no exaggeration, they would start to migrate during the archery July A-zone season before the bait was even on the ground. They'd come up from like Alum Rock Park <laughs> and start moving up here, brother, and then they'd lay up. So I made an admission, we're going to get this guy. If I have to sit up here every night, every weekend, camping out in the dirt, we're going to get it. And we got him on the last Sunday of season. So it was a six-week operation. And we didn't have specialized ATVs then. We didn't have all the camouflage. You know, we didn't have all the night vision and good yep. spotting scopes. So we were ad hocking it. We were doing it out of pocket, you know, and, but learning a lot in the process. And that, that we made that case, which made a lot of doubters in my command staff like, you know, you haven't written one deer ticket or fishing ticket. What are you doing? Just hiding on a hill for six <laughs> weeks? You're welcome back. You're home. I, I yeah. heard good things from what you did in SoCal, but... My, you know, my lieutenant's pulling his hair out, going crazy, but then we made the case. And I gave him like, you know, a three-inch pile of surveillance notes when we did the prosecution and put the report together. And he was convicted, and it stopped it. And then it took about a year, and then all these deer were back. And so to put the time into making a case like that really made a difference from the standpoint of species and, and conservation. And also as a challenge. You yeah. know, I love going after a hardcore that thinks he has the game warden's number. I mean, and busting years, the guy that really, that's a long time. That's a, a yeah, extreme repetitive behavior. Uh -huh. What I'm assuming you encountered poachers sporadically. What was the, did you have any main motivations behind them just deviating from the law? They just didn't care? Or what, what was the main motivation you found between poachers? You know, it was kind of ingrained. It was almost like a, like a tradition. Uh, um, it was one of these things where they felt they had a right. It wasn't a privilege. Um, you know, socialized down from generation to generation. I was going to say, that's some bad gouge getting passed down it, from it, it, father is. to son. It is. And it's interesting because at one time I would see an 18-year-old son of like a Bay Area shrimp fisherman that was, you know, we'd always worked for violating, you know, the marine stuff with, with shrimp violations or commercial fisheries. Again, I completely forgot you guys. <laughs> yeah, and, and we do that too. Yeah, we're doing shrimp and we're doing abalone and yeah. Whitetail and shrimp. It's a yeah. classic very <laughs> Surf and turf. Surf and turf. <laughs> Exactly. But we would see these youngsters under these, you know, mentors baiting doves, shooting doves on an over limit, you know, and all this other stuff on September 1st. And we'd find, you know, they'd be doing deer baiting after dove season or during. It was just, it was just ingrained because that's the way they were raised. And so those were the guys we would bust. But again, it's one of those things where my whole thing in my career was treat everybody with respect, even if you catch them red handed. And maybe you're going to turn somebody around yeah. if you do this the right way. And I actually had a couple of guys through my career, I'm going to say probably, you know, five or 10, most 
hardcore poachers don't really turn the other cheek. They just got to get busted and we got to revoke their stuff and try to get them out of circulation. But some guys, you know, were, uh, they were treated fairly. They weren't treated with the beat down as long as they didn't get violent. And I didn't have to get violent. Everything was, was going to go okay. They took their ticket. We seized a lot of their equipment. Probably got their license revoked for many years because they had multiple egregious, you know, wildlife violations. Um, and then they would um, call me out of the blue, you know, like a year later and say, you know, you were really cool how you handled that. And your guys are really cool. I mean, I was never treated that well by other law enforcement or, you know, the game warden, you know, before, you know, kind of, you know, gave me the beat down. There was, you know, some judgment. And we're emotional about what we protect because we love wildlife. We're not just doing a job. So sometimes we get a little heated. But by going in with that approach, they would call me later on as like an informant and go, you know what? I want to help you out. I'm not going to ever do this again. I know a lot of, you know, this and that. And I was making some great cases, these guys. So it's kind of the, you know, poacher to preacher type mentality. That's very interesting. And it's cool when that happens because imagine the wealth of negative knowledge these guys know when they're trying to play cat and mouse with us for generations. And now all of a sudden they're like, you know what? You're getting an inside look at their tactic playbook. Oh, man. And we made some crazy cases. I mean... It's funny. I haven't thought about this case. It's so funny. You asked perfect question. <laughs> I hadn't thought about this case, man, until right now for about 10 years. But I remember a guy and it was, um, you remember Highway 9 Tollgate yes. going up over Highway 17 yes. between your, Santa Cruz and yep. where I was at, where you grew up. There was Tollgate Road. It went up to a really wealthy community. I mean, you know, multi-million dollar yep. mansions, rose bushes, high landscaping, five acre parcels. And um, I actually got a tip from a guy that I had treated well and busted. And he goes, you know, I got to let you know something. There's a guy <laughs> up there and he's got this customized rifle. It was like a 3220 caliber black, you know, basically a lead head that he had put down, squib loads in. So it was subsonic. So it was super quiet. Oh, wow. And he had a... Um, like so a he's way, already deep right there. Oh, he's like way that. deep. Yeah. Way deep. And he's, you know, he's telling me he, he didn't know the particulars, but he said, it's some really trick rifle that's really quiet. But he's, he's driving up like... When everyone's getting home, mom's getting home with the kids, people are coming in and he's driving right in under these, you know, under the umbrella, people getting home and within a couple hours and he's, he's shooting a buck quietly, like just stopping like he belongs there at a mailbox, pops a buck, leaves it, leaves the area, comes back in the middle of the night and harvests it and never gets caught because these people are just, you know, everyone's assuming he's part of the, you know, yeah. the community. And so I started working this and it, it took several weeks and it was weeknight stuff it was crazy it was early you know you don't talk spotlighters you're in the sticks yeah in the mountains and it's two three four in the morning five o'clock it's just getting dark and you this know this guy's just rowing bagging it and he's rolling and he, he's in his wife's new acura you know and um in the back <laughs> he had this he had this uncased uh this 32 caliber lever gun with these special loads he had some guy hand load for him he wasn't a hand loader himself so there's uh subsonic and then he had a um a scout scope when those scout scopes were brand new they were just coming out the forward eye relief way forward mm-hmm. like the jeff cooper scout rifle and sure enough this weapon it was a five thousand dollar weapon the way wow. it was customized and set up. And I actually caught him spotlighting under a judge's house in the judge's landscaping of the court that we prosecuted in there in Santa Clara County. And uh, <laughs> when I caught him red-handed, he went, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're here. How do you know? I'm, ah, you know, just checking the area. Yep. And it was crazy, man. That was, that was one of those guns that went back to our academy in the exotic weapons class. Oh, that we could sure. tell a heck of a story about. I mean, talk about a customized poacher rig. But those type of cases are the ones that just stand out and you go, wow, it can happen anywhere. You know, anywhere. 
So I mean, that it might, is happening. That might there. actually be the best place to do it, right underneath somebody's nose. Yeah, you got a nice looking car. You're just road banging with a yeah. Suns <laughs> up. It's like, hey, just drop my kids off. Yeah, got a big buck. I'll come back and get them tonight. I tell you what, the and modification, the hand loading to a subsonic round. To mm-hmm. me, as soon as you said that, I was like, ooh. This guy's taking it serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds like <laughs> operational stuff, man. I can you see know? guys just grabbing their, you know, whatever gun, their, you know, truck gun and doing that type of stuff to shooting off the road. But if somebody yeah. goes that deep, I mean, yeah. that's a lot of investment in time, energy, and effort. It really is. And intention. I yeah. mean, it shows you about the mindset. And I mean, this guy knew, and he was completely friendly. He was completely um, nonviolent, you know. Because he knew he, he was, was completely screwed. He was completely hosed, <laughs> you know. And, when I, and I did. And what was so embarrassing was, I mean, I light him up, and I had an old, I had a Chevy Blazer at the time, like an '87 Blazer, the old school blue. We didn't have any green trucks yet, and I remember lighting him up with the red and blues and the spotlight and everything. And I'm in this neighborhood, and people's lights are coming on, and security systems are going. On. He's just like. Oh my gosh, the embarrassment, you know, but can we do this somewhere else? Can we do this somewhere else? Can you like take me down to Tollgate and like, no, no, no. everyone's going to see. Yeah. Everyone's going to see. That's awesome. Your limelight, your 15 minutes, man. (laughs) You just had your 15 minutes. It's crazy. Those happen right in between where you and I grew up. Yeah. Yeah. So when did it change for you? Did it go from that type Um, of enforcement or I would say the traditional game warden enforcement to, I'll actually just let you describe what it became or how that pipeline started for you yeah it was it was an interesting interesting chain of events because i think if i hadn't been at the right place at the right time and didn't have a good relationship with the more tactical oriented like like swat teams Mm -hmm. with the sheriff's office or with san jose pd they have a merge team which is a full-time really good swat team dedicated um the military element of like moffett field was there Mm -hmm. and the counter drug group that you know when they're not saving our, you know, our, our operators, you know, and our, our servicemen like yourself, um, from the 129th, from the air force, the air rescue squadron and the PAFOC teams, they're doing counter drug work right all over the state of California and other parts of the country out of Moffitt. I didn't know any of that, but I got to know that early on before I ever got exposed to the first cartel, um, cannabis grow with the SWAT guys I was working with or the special operations guys. So myself and my partner, Mark, we were, you know, we had an affinity. We were both shooters. We liked tactics. So we wanted to step up the game, not only as game wardens, but just make ourselves better as law enforcement, whatever we're going to do, spec ops or not. So we were going to SWAT schools that mm-hmm. the agencies were bringing us into, operator schools, various weapon systems, um, sniper schools, building our own rifles. And we were enjoying it. And we were Was doing your department supportive of that? They were without supporting it financially or the time. So you were so out of pocket on your own. It was time. out of pocket, completely out of pocket on our own. And, you know, game wardens aren't the highest paid cops. So, yeah. you know, our, our families were like, what are you doing? What are you building? <laughs> well, and the reason I asked that is because, you know, again, if you would have asked me what the traditional roles and responsibility of a game warden is, right. I likely wouldn't say sniper. I right. wouldn't say a tactical team. It it just, no it's sense. just not what I thought of. Yeah. And even then, it, that was so non-traditional and non-conformant. It just made it didn't make sense to the traditional minded uh, supervisor or our, our, you know, our department with the mindset and then to people on the outside. But what was happening as a result of being in the Bay area and being around really good teams is they became our support. Like when we were on a really crazy call with a felon or a, you know, a parolee that we catch fishing at night, Santa's APD or the sheriff's office, they're going to be there faster than my next game or, and it might be three hours away yeah, or even sure. at home. Um, so we started to become partners and they started to see us as viable equals when it came to tactical knowledge and, you know, officer safety and, and they liked it. And that was the first time that was really starting to happen. I mean, it started to happen in other parts of the state with other officers too. And I think we knew, or at least I had the foresight to know that with the way 
public safety issues were developing, and this was prior to night. This was right before nine eleven. I was just going to ask that. What it was, was it was literally like two thousand that we started immersing in all these schools, and then when nine eleven hit, and we had just gone to sniper schools with a bunch of guys, military and law enforcement. Those military guys were in, you know, they were reserve seals. Yep. There were, you know, different guys from Delta. There were guys from the Air Force, and they're deployed, and you know, everything changed. Where'd and you go through sniper school at? Santa Clara County Sheriff's Range. Cool. Yeah, they had a really good one at the time. Um, it was the first rural school that went, you know, out to 300 yards, which no one was doing in law. It was 100, maybe two. Yeah, I think the average law enforcement sniper shot is around 77 yards. 77 yards, yep. Which in a city makes sense because you can see about 77 yards. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, the cool thing was what the sheriffs were doing in their school is they're saying, hey, we're a rural team. We might get deployed on this, you know, crazy woodland area where we might have to do overwatch or shoot far. And I like that school. And I talk about them in both books, and I really get into them in book two in the new book, Hidden War. Um, Spag, John Spagnola was a sergeant, mm-hmm. and he was running Sierra team um, at the time, which is the Santa Clara County Sheriff's sniper team within their SWAT unit. Um, and I met John in my first sniper school in 2000 when he and I were going together. He was a, you know, a pup deputy who was sanctioned, you know, he was basically, you know, taken under the arm to do an apprenticeship to go to sniper school and maybe become a sniper within their unit. It was really tough to get into. They had about five, five guys on gun. So I met John, Mark and I met him at that school and we were all shooting well, having a great time. And we just really clicked. And what I liked about him is he was always looking to improve everything and he was just OCD and super organized and I shared a lot of those same, you know, kind of kind of quirks if you will. I had learned to hand load early on as a teenager, so I was into precision ammunition, getting as much accuracy out of the gun, the cartridge and trying to do my part as You're a shooter. You're all in. All in. Yeah, I was I mean, I smelled the ether, I was done. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you know, yep. and, and, and knowing that when, when all that was coming together, I said, you know, we may not need a sniper unit now. We may not even need a, a SWAT type game war unit now, but given the direction the world's going and, you know, Al Qaeda training camps are being found like in the, the deserts out in Imperial and San Diego County and our patrol game wardens were running across some of those same guys that were responsible for nine 11, we find out. Yeah. And we didn't know that till many years later, but I'm like, you know, we're going to need to be involved. We're going to need to have these skill sets, if nothing else, to integrate. Um, so that was the building blocks to at least get us in the right mindset. And not everybody was doing it, but some of the game wardens that I was close to were the guys that liked it. They, you know, they had an affinity for tactics and, and, and weapon stuff. So, so we dove in. And then when I found the, uh, the first cartel grow in 2004, which is the first chapter of my first book, um, War in the Woods, that blew my mind. I went, okay, man, we are, this is not the traditional game. We're not, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. This is crazy. Yeah. And just a, a backstory on that, it, fill you in on just how that kind of started is my buddy who was doing a biological study on steelhead trout and red-legged frog and all these endangered species right in a little piece of property that was an old hunting ranch at a co-park um, called Palisou Ridge. He had been doing a study in there for I think he was about year two of about a five-year study for his master's thesis. And he called me in late April. I grew up with this guy, hunting, fishing, hanging out, family friend forever. Super cool guy. And he, uh, he goes, John, this is crazy, man. I'm, you know, it's April. River flow should be great. It's rain runoff. You know, we're still in our spring. And I got two, you know, two creeks I study. And one's flowing like 100 miles an hour. And steelhead, you know, have come up from the bay and they've spawned. And we got our fry in there and they're doing good. And all the other animals are fine. But, my, but the left channel is completely dry, hmm. and everything's dead. 
fish fry are dead, they're drying out, frogs are dead, you know, there's a bunch of debris and trash like in the creek, a bunch of plastic that like black plastic that I what's that? Yeah, nonsensical for the it, area. It made it, Andy, it made no sense. No sense at all. I'd never seen anything like it. But the first thing I think of when a creek's dry when it shouldn't be is I go into the old school mentality of the traditional stuff. This is a water diversion from a farmer or some landowner up top that's diverting it for cattle or he's diverting it for his own agriculture and there's a water issue and yep. it's a public waterway so we got to go check it out so i throw him in the truck we go up the beautiful beautiful canyon we get to the top right in the border co park and i have uh you know my backpack i have general patrol supplies i got my ar he's an unarmed civilian savvy but you know not armed obviously and we dive into the canyon and there's no cell coverage there's no radio coverage we're just like we're deep deep and we're, we get into this real pristine like it's like a mini grand canyon gorgeous i'd never seen it where it's a real thin little tributary that's kind of the headwaters of everything that gets to coyote creek and if you know you know from the bay area that coyote creek goes all the way to the south bay yeah and it's our only viable left steelhead spawning migration channel to come all the way from the bay let those fish lay their eggs so we get some steelhead and go back and um, we dive down and sure enough we see that you know the whole, uh, the whole creek is dammed up. There's a water hose in it, and the water hose is kind of going down a dry channel and going off in the woods somewhere. So, you know, we go in and sneak in there, and I'm waiting for, to find that traditional diversion. It's going to be somebody doing something for agriculture, and then I start to see marijuana plants, and they're, you know, maybe two and a half, three feet tall, maybe two feet tall. They, yep. It was early. Yeah, early on. I'm going on, running, you know, cruising down, and I'm seeing, you know, just the, the, the water's a weird color. Like there's something in it, and we had no idea about these EPA banned toxic, you know, poisons that these guys import across the border at the time, but they were using them. This was 2004, and we keep going down further and further, further down, and I see a camp in the creek, and I see just a bunch of trash, and the banks are all the vegetation's removed, trees are cut down, and here's just, I mean, acres and acres and acres of marijuana, and then I see two growers, and these guys are, you know. Hispanic and they're dressed in camo and they have heavy heavy weapons and they got big knives on them and they got machetes and they're you know they're going through tending their water lines and yeah but they did it in such a way that really kind of freaked me out they had like situational awareness like they knew they didn't belong there but they had tactical training because they would stop and one guy would look around and scan you know and check everything out look at his surroundings and then they would stop you know occasionally look at their six o'clock they'd be really quiet as they move they were silent and went wow this is not your typical poacher what are these guys doing where are they from and you know my mind's spinning and now i'm thinking we can't contact them that's not going to be a good day um, i have an unarmed civilian with me and i got one ar and i got a red dot on the, the lead guy that's you know, 30 yards and closing down this creek and we're hiding in a creek cut bank. And I'm thinking this could be a real bad day because we walked into something we had no idea or were prepared for because of the, the mindset we were locked into. Um, and fortunately, they got to about 15 yards. They made a hard left. We stayed hidden. I, I trained on the lead guy with the weapon, just, just holding, hoping he, it didn't get crazy. And he worked his way up the hill and they doubled back. And then we did our, you know, we basically backtracked our steps, climbed the big hill, got out. And I mean, my mind was racing. I'm like, holy crap, what is this? I got to call the right people. And then uh, it went from there. It just accelerated. It, it ramped up quick. Yeah, because where I had never worked with narcotics teams and some of these HIDA teams that were, you know, set for doing drug cases. If, and at the time, you know, that side of cannabis was considered, you know, in, in a narcotics world. Um, I started working with agencies I'd never worked with. That's when I met some of the Santa Clara County Sheriff's marijuana enforcement team guys that would later become 
the closest brothers I could ever ask for from another agency that really helped legitimize us in what would later lead to our own team. Um, but we, we worked with a lot of agencies on that raid. And um, obviously we were the guides, the bird dogs, the wildlife experts to get them into position. Mm-hmm. But we weren't looked at for any tactical advisement. We weren't looked at for arrest, you know, planning or operational setup or any of that. And when we executed that raid with them, um, it was really cool to be part of that mission, but we learned a lot from that mission and we learned what we wanted to do different if we were going to stay in the game. Um, where we could have caught guys on that, on that raid, we didn't because yeah. it was, don't, don't chase them, don't get hurt. We'll announce early, you know, if they give up, great. If not, don't chase them. And I thought, yeah, I'm doing a lot of damage to my wildlife, man. Yeah. I want to chase them. I want to, <laughs> I want to get, I want to get some cuffs on these guys, get them in the dirt, you know, yep. that type of thing. Yep. And then when we eradicated all those plants and cut them all down, we had no idea we were like handling poisons and all this stuff on them because it was kind yeah, of... Talk a little about a, the poisons, sure. if you would, because you went in uh, pretty good depth on Joe's podcast. It was unbelievable the damage that that stuff was doing. Yeah, they what these guys do is um, we got to remember, and, and I want to you know talk about California being a regulated state now with cannabis and Montana where we're at now as well. And we just want to, you know, want your listeners to know that this is apples and oranges. This is the side of cannabis that will never be legal. It's it's trespass. It's on public lands or private ranches. It's never supposed to be on. It's done with um, EPA banned toxic poisons called carbofuran, furdan, metafos. There's all these different trade names. Bottom line is this stuff was banned tw- about 20 years ago by the EPA from being used in America on agricultural products. Um, and it's also a felony to even possess it in America and use it anywhere because it's so toxic. The active ingredient is basically a nerve agent that the Nazis developed in, in the, in world war two. And this stuff is so concentrated and so toxic that just two tablespoons put in a Creek, like the Creek that was diverted, Mm. you could kill two to five miles of every living aquatic, every fish, every animal that drinks from the Creek, no exaggeration from just that limited amount of dose. Sounds so, delightful. Oh, it's lovely. Great stuff. <laughs> Jesus. And the funny part about it is, is when you mix it up with water and you shake it up, it looks like a pink energy drink. You think you're drinking a workout drink or, you know, it looks like Pepto-Bismol oh, wow. or something. And so this stuff looks really sedate on these trails in the woods that anybody could hike next to and find in like a cache, you know, a bag for that's, that's set to go to a growth site. We had no idea what this stuff was or the, or the, you know, how toxic it was and how nasty it was at the time. But it was actually in that growth site way back in 04. And when we start talking about those future missions and what happened, especially the last five, six years when we, when we built our specialized unit and how we dealt with that stuff, it, it got pretty crazy. Well, I mean, I'd love to hear you explain how you got to that point with your own sure. unit and, w- and what it eventually became. Sure. Well, getting back to that one mission in 04, one of the things we saw besides different tactics where we felt we could have apprehended these guys to maybe put a little deterrence in them and get them out of circulation. I didn't know at the time that the way the cartel cells work is if these guys get away, they're just kind of laughing at us. Like these guys, you know, cops are going to come in. They're going to make a lot of noise. We have our escape trails. It's going to suck to lose a 10 to 20 to $30 million cash cow in one grow, but I'm just going to move over and I'm going to be put in another grow Yeah. because the guy I work for, the people right above him, he's probably responsible for 50 throughout a good portion of California, maybe some other states. So not catching them really didn't sit well with us, which was, and it didn't sit well with Santa Clara County sheriffs either. Lori Smith, the sheriff, who's still the sheriff in Santa Clara County, and Nancy Foley, our chief, 
were both hand in hand collaterally in what they what their vision was and they agreed we need to catch these guys and we'll give the tactical training we need to we know it's going to get dangerous we'll take that hit if the guys want to do it we're going to go after them but the thing that really irritated us was after we eradicated all those plants with 7000 plant grow that day Pavehawk came in to help us because we needed air support unplanned, mm-hmm. much bigger than we thought. That was my first exposure to the military teams and hoisting in and out and bringing all that stuff in. That was cool. Um, started a good relationship with our military, um, you know, brother, brother and sisterhood there. But after all the plants were cut, we lifted all that stuff out. And I talked to the team leader. And I'm like, well, what's, why are we taking the hose out? Why yeah, the job's doing, not quite done yet. Why are we getting the, the creek back? You know, what are, look at all that propane and human excrement where they've been crapping in the creek for like four months. I mean, this is a steelhead channel. These 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 fish are threatened and endangered, federally listed. They're like $20,000 value, at least per fish. We're down to a couple thousand a year. This is this is the hub, the source. Let's clean it up. And like, no, we don't do that, man. It's like, <laughs> we're, we're not, we're not going to clean up garbage. We're not paid. We're not funded. And at the time, Andy, all the funding was based on plant count from the DEA. And we would get the DCEP grant every year under yeah. the drugs are right, right under the president. And I'm like, this isn't adding up, man. And then my chief, Nancy, was really supportive. She said, you know what? If we're going to be involved, I'm going to support it. But we need to get these other agencies helping us clean up. And somehow, some way, we need to get to the drugs are. We need to get to the, the national level of policymaking with DEA to show that environmental reclamation and cleanup is as valuable, if not more so, than just cutting plants. And we need to get funding to agencies based on that. And that was a non-traditional way to go. And if you're not a conservation law enforcement agency, you're not thinking, yeah, I've just spent 20 hours on a crazy raid. You know, you know, a workup of how a daily op goes. Yeah. And, you know, when we're running hot, we're running five, six, seven of these a week. You're pretty wrecked and pretty smoked at the end of a 100-degree day and the insertion, exertion, you know, the um, after exfil, after canine deployments, and then after chopping all that garbage and getting it out, nobody wants to sit around and clean up a growth site. Yeah, it's the last thing on your mind at that point. Yeah, it's, it's ugly work, but we all felt like we were doing some good stuff or let's bring in a secondary team. It took about 10 years. And then in that 10-year period, we sounds, fun, we that fun, sounds about bureaucratically correct. Yeah, about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, like you're, you know, you feel like I you're, mean, realistically, yeah, that's, you're just spitting in the wind, man. Yeah. And, but you just, I just kept grinding, grinding. And other things that had happened that really got us the attention we needed is, and it was a horrible event, but some positive things came out of it, was a second big mission with Santa Clara County that the first book goes into that you probably heard me talk a little bit with Joe about was when we got in our first gunfight. Mm-hmm. And it was just above Los Gatos, that Sierra Azul open space. Which is insane to me. When you say Los Gatos and gunfight, yeah. I'm just like, what are you, yeah. you're I mean, out of your a- mind. Affluent Los Gatos, yeah. you know, what cartel gunfights with game wardens and sheriffs, what's going on? But that day, when we went into that grow site, I mean, it was about a mile hike straight up. It wasn't real far, but it was real brushy, real arduous. Um, but where we were sitting no joke, you could look down and see eBay, Facebook, Google, Cisco. You could see all that area you and I saw growing up coming over that hill, right? And so we had better cell coverage than we had radio coverage. That tells you the line of sight. And what we went into was another 10, 11,000 plant grow, part of a bigger complex that was like 30,000 unchecked. Cartel run, they never had any interaction with law enforcement. They were just in there like cells all over a mountainside that went about two or three miles. And um, they were in the middle of harvest time, so they had their more aggressive gunmen set up with SKSs and AK derivatives and sawed off 12 gauges and the whole nine. And um, they got one of the one of the bad guys got one shot off, and unfortunately that shot went through my young partner's legs, through his uh, his right thigh, 
exited his inner right thigh and was tumbling like a 762-39 steel core is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And it just tumbled through his, his left leg. So he's bleeding out of four holes. And we're three game wardens, three sheriff's deputies, one unarmed mid-peninsula ranger um, doing what we can do with limited resources because up to that point, no one had ever been hurt in these groves. No law enforcement had been shot at. Yeah. Very seldomly did they even see a bad guy, much less catch anybody. And they never found guns. And now these guys just, you know, were, were ready and armed to unleash hell on us, but they only got one shot off before the cacophony of gunfire between me and my partners with their ARs got some bad guys down that mm-hmm. were going to wreak more havoc. Um, but my partner took a pretty near fatal hit. What were you guys ROEs in those situations? What's that? What were the ROEs you guys were operating? Yeah, that's, it's a, that's a good question that comes up and um, rules of engagement are it's standard deadly force protocol for us in law enforcement. Same thing with the sheriffs. If, we see a deadly force threat that can, you know, lay harm to ourselves or our partners, then we can engage. But they have to pull a gun. They have to do something to execute deadly force. We can't just see them, say, with a weapon, you know, um, in a holster or anything like that. So it's, it's a fine line. It sounds, obviously, it's a super fine line. It sounds similar. Our, our ROEs, obviously, you know, they're based in one. You always have the inherent right to self-defense. Right. And that includes the people that you're with. It doesn't have to be right. a direct threat to you. But for us, one of two criteria largely had to be met. It was hostile act or hostile intent. Right. Hostile act, obviously, pulling a gun and pointing it at me. Perhaps we might have had a little bit more leeway in the intent because we could make an assumption as to the individual's activity. A great example would be military age male for no other reason than to get the tactical advantage is yeah. assuming a high ground position. Right. If, if articulated correctly, you're, you're in the good zone to engage yeah. that. And I've, I've always felt, and I have never had, but no law enforcement background whatsoever, but I always felt that we had probably a little bit more room to make decisions in that environment. Cause I would imagine yeah. for, for you guys, um, given especially the litigious nature of the work, would almost be slightly reactive in nature. It is, unfortunately, and that's the fine line. And more and more people have said, you know, if we could have rules of engagement a little closer to what you just described, um, because you know that profile. Yep. And after you've had enough missions, as you well know, and I'm preaching to the choir on this one, is the more grows we would go into and the more armed gunmen we would see and growers during harvest time, we're like, okay, well, we had one gun fight in here. You know, my partner was almost killed on this one. Fortunately, he wasn't. And then we started to ramp up the tactics, the medical support, the administrative support. I mean, on that particular mission, we waited three hours for an air rescue from a bird that would actually come into a hot zone and lower a hoist and lower a medic and basket him out. It was a else, long time. When you it was a long ass hydraulic time. Hydraulic fluid coming out. Oh, yeah. And he's bleeding out of everything. A tough kid. Yeah. I mean, he was just, we had a baiting case of all things we were going to do the very next weekend. And all he's thinking is like, oh, I, I hope I'm okay to do the baiting case. I'm like, take it easy. Take it easy. Breathe. <laughs> Let's just get you off this damn hill and You're do gonna it. You're going to get some calm time? Just yeah. go ahead and enjoy that? Yeah, yeah. We'll get the baiting case later. Um, so did you guys throw some tourniquets on his legs? We did. We did. But we had Israelis. Yep. We, we had some very, I mean, just basically webbing for tourniquets. We didn't have cat tourniquets yet. I know. It was early. This was early. Yeah. I mean, this was this was 05 when you guys, you know, fighting the war on terror overseas, were just starting to get all your trauma um, medicine. The TCCC stuff it was, was it just was, ramping it up. It was just ramping up. Quick clot, C-locks, all anticoagulant. Yep. And so this incident for us, because we had so many reserves and we were working with Moffitt, they're like, you know what? You guys are kind of fighting a little domestic eco-terrorist war right here, and you're well equipped. And so the first thing we did after that whole incident went down is, and again, Nancy was our chief. I mentioned her before. And a shout out because she said, okay, we took a lot of heat of why game wardens run a drug case. What the heck are they doing up there? Why did that kid get shot? 
And I'm telling everybody, why aren't game wardens on a case like that? It's an environmental train wreck. It's the biggest anti-environmental poaching wildlife loss we're seeing, at least that I had ever seen, and I'd been on almost 15, 16, 17 years. So she kept us in the game, but she took some heat, you know, because it just, it, again, traditional, what does a game warden do? But in addition to getting the tactics and having more support and more bodies and more trained operators to do it the right, safe way, I said, we need medical training better. We need better medical equipment. And we started to get to do that. And it was largely from what you guys were doing overseas. We had a lot of those Delta level medics coming yep. back to Moffitt and going, Hey, I just did this with the teams. We just, ex we changed this technique. We're using this new thing. And so, you know, it got to where you're carrying a dirty tourniquet, a secondary tourniquet. Now we run the same stuff, you know, our sealed brothers and other special ops brothers and sisters do. And you look so at the people who can have to survive the injuries overseas. I yeah. mean, people now are surviving things that would be fatal it's in, crazy. in warfare generations before. Yeah. You know, I bet one of the main reasons that the administration or the bureaucracy will push back against, I don't want to say loosening the ROEs, but changing them is there's the reality that you're going to be wrong sometimes. Right. Because you have to make assumptions. And Absolutely. again, in an environment where body cameras seem to be mandatory, yeah. it's, it's very difficult to empower your people to make those decisions if you know that the guillotine is going to fall in your head. Yeah. And you're going to have to justify it. So I can understand that, but I think you guys would probably be a little bit more effective and safer if you were given just a touch more leash there. We, we definitely would. We definitely would. You hit it on the head there. It's, um, it's one of those things that, that was the first of six gunfights we were involved in right before I retired. My last one being 2017, before I retired last year at the end of 2018. And one thing we learned through the process, and no one got, none of us got hurt, fortunately, mm -hmm. after, after that first one in, in 05. But what we learned moving on and on and on was the mindset, the motivation, you know, the, the overt movements, like you said, you know, military age male making that yep. move. You pretty much know what's going on here, so you can make that leeway. We still have to stay within that deadly force threat being immediate, yep. but we can prepare better going in to know, hey, that bulge is probably a weapon, get the canine ready, and the second that gun comes out, we're not going to wait. Yeah, you know, guys had enough experience at that point that there wasn't any hesitation. So it's a we, lot of pattern recognition. Over it's the it's years. a lot. It really is. You know, and, and that and every time we go through another critical incident, just the better you get at making that quick assessment, and having your young guys, you know, ramped up and and something that was was really really cool is all of these violent encounters that were that were leading in you know basically leading to gunplay, we didn't have canines yet. So 05, 06, 06, and then we had our, our second shootout in 07, and this one was in Saratoga, you know, right below Mountain Winery, not far from there. This is ridiculous. Same type of, get, <laughs> you know, and guys running a 30-30 carbine and a Glock and a you know, shotgun, just, just crazy stuff. But Where are they sourcing those weapons from? From us. They're all stolen. And, and what people don't realize is they're thinking, well, you know, is, is it, is it a, a bias, you know, against... Latin growers? Is it really cartel? I've heard so many different, you know, criticisms and critiques over the years. And I even get that, you know, when mm -hmm. after Joe's, after, you know, with Stephen Rennell, after I did that show and telling this story in different forms and, you know, d different examples, um, people just can't fathom that that's really what's going on. But I, I hate to, you know, be the, the spoiler here, guys, but it's not rosy in our woods, you know, some of the places. And these same cartel groups we know, aren't only growing this tainted cannabis and selling it all over America on the black market to unsuspecting growers. They're ingesting these poisons. These same groups are, they're running guns to fight the wars in Mexico because they don't have infrastructure to make weapons down there, good ones. So all the stolen guns we see throughout the entire nation, a lot of it is from just that effort from these cartel groups because they mm -hmm. need to put grower, you know, they need to put guns in their growers' hands, their defenders, their gunmen during harvest. 
um, all of that. So they're all coming from mostly stolen sources. Are you guys America. able to track those back, assuming that there's still a serial number on it? Some of them. Some of them. A lot of, most of the time, honestly, Andy, the serial number's gone. Yeah, well, they yeah, they, they file it make, off. And we find sense. some nice, I mean, as an example, and, and you being a gun guy too, when I see a Colt Series 70 Gold Cup, it's just tricked out for something my dad, you know, I yeah. inherited from dad. And I just, I mean, that's just gold in the hand, you know, we find some, I found, we found one of those in a cartel grow and tried to track it back. And, you know, the serial number was ground off, but we did some, you know, some more deeper testing and found it. And it was like stolen out of Washington, you know, out of some nice home from a veteran. Yeah. Um, we, a lot of Glock pistols, a lot of the duty guns we carry forties, nines, different ones. They're all stolen. Um, the SKSs, the AKs, the ones we've seized from the guys we have been engaged or have had to engage, and we actually recovered the weapon nine times out of ten stolen or no record, which means they're stolen. It just hasn't been reported or, you know, the serial number isn't identifiable, so there's that going on. And then we got to look at the fact that fentanyl, the new synthetic heroin, and methamphetamine and human trafficking, all one big group. Yeah. Just doing different crimes. It's just the summer season is, okay, this is cannabis time because we're going to make a lot of money in, you know, in country. We're not going to have to deal with the border interdiction of losing some of it. So we'll produce down there, do panga boats, still smuggle it across the border, mm-hmm. taking it, you know, calculated loss. But we're going to make hundreds of millions. Yeah. They'll lose one to get 99. Yeah. yeah. I talked to my law enforcement buddies up here and I mean, I can't speak, speak for them obviously, but when I do talk with them about because I'm curious, I have kids. Like, mm-hmm. what are the major issues you guys are dealing with? That's the thing, yeah, for Oftentimes sure. Oftentimes, they'll say uh, stolen guns, that crime, because yep. that becomes the cash product. Because what they're dealing with a lot of the times is methamphetamines. Yes, and what they're doing is they'll take the weapons uh, across the across the borders. There's, you know, three. They're saying that there's three basically cities that are hubs yep. for here. So Trade true. weapon for drug. Right. Drug comes back. Drug becomes cash product for them. Yep. And the meth in here, we're 60 miles from the Canadian. Well, we're probably a little bit, maybe 80 now from where we are. But it's uh, Mexican methamphetamine. Yeah. And we're 80 miles from the Canadian border. Yeah. It's it, crazy to see how that is all connected. It's all connected. And the, the scary part about it is, um, yeah, it, you know, I've done a lot of obviously outreach on this in the Montana area. And so officers and public groups are concerned, well, do we have this grow problem here in Montana? Once in a blue moon. You'll get a grow, but you know our growing season, our elevation. I was going to say it's probably not set up for it environmentally. Not not set up for it environmentally exactly, but the methamphetamine production, the human trafficking, the fentanyl stuff—it's all going on here. It's yep. in every state in the union. So you know that poisoning element. And the last thing we want to see is your kids, our kids, grandkids, anybody you know affected by this stuff. But the demand is there. So these Does guys it make are, it into the weed, the poisons that you're talking about. Does it actually the finished product? There's still residue in there. There is, there is, and what happens is these guys spray it all over the flower, all over the bud, in the water right below the plant. It kills everything, right? That's kills why everything. It's yep. illegal because it's too effective. Oh, it's way, too, it's way too effective. <laughs> yeah. And and check this out, brother. So this stuff is like a 12 ounce container is all like crystalline powder, and it's made was originally made to be diluted in like four to five thousand gallons of water, and then sprayed in sprayers on a plant, you know, an ag, on a, whatever ag plant, you know, for consumption. The EPA determined even that was too toxic wow. and cancerous and everything. So the way these growers do it is they have a backpack sprayer, like three to five gallons at the most. One of the little, just the handheld pump The handheld ones. pump yeah. ones or the back, you know, they pump yep. it up and they're just out spraying and they put a whole container of that stuff in there to three to five gallons of water. So imagine the concentration. And I've got pictures in there, even in the, the new book, where you've got a guy all camouflaged with a sprayer and he's smiling and it's on these 10-foot plants. And then the next picture we find on this guy's cell phone after we capture him is he's holding up a golden eagle and smiling. Look what I just killed that came into my plant, a golden eagle. I mean, that's yeah. pretty rare. You know from Cali. That's yeah. like, you know, they're more rare than bald eagles here in Montana. 
Um, and obviously an animal you never want to kill like that. So, but wow. the doses that are on the plants, the doses that these guys are getting exposed to, and then what we're getting exposed to as officers and cleanup crews from whatever agency is, is of huge concern. Now this stuff does dissipate. Once it gets on the plant, um, it goes on almost like a, like a white sheen, like overspray from a white paint or, you know, bird droppings. That's what it kind of looks like. And then when it dries, it gets kind of clear. And as it dries more after 14 days, it's almost invisible. So they process everything in the grow, all their buds in one pound, you know, vacuum sealed, little digital scales, it gets put in the sea bags. And if they get it out of the woods and don't get interdicted by our efforts, it goes to distribution centers on the West Coast and just pipelines all the way through the nation. Potent THC, really relatively inexpensive compared to organic licensed inspected cannabis in these Mm -hmm. legitimate farms. And, you know, kids and medical patients and recreationalists to the tune of 40 plus million people in the U.S. are ingesting this stuff all over the country and have no idea what they're ingesting. And can they only compete with that because of the price point? I mean, you look at California, right, where it's like, hey, it, everything, go go to town. And they still right. have a market for that there just based on the price point alone? It, it, it's price point and because there's a black market in the rest of the country. So like in Iowa that has no regulation, let's say, or maybe Nebraska or whatever middle America town, eastern seaboard, New York, Chicago, so much of this stuff gets there because there's no legitimate market for it. So obviously there's still other grows going on, say in California that are being illegally, you know, products being illegally moved to all those areas and it's organic and it's clean and it's, it's going to bring a higher market or a higher price, but it's still black market stuff because the black market is rampant in so many States. So just because of that demand and there's such a big demand for weed everywhere, this stuff has no problem getting sold. And what's interesting is, and what we really dive into when, when we talk about the end of book number two with hidden war is Okay, now that I'm, into, I'm in, at the end of a six-year, you know, five-year plan before retirement of getting this team on board, you know, building it the right way, working with all the right people, getting it in circulation to be as effective as we can to stop this product from getting anywhere out into the open market and get these guys out of circulation for obvious reasons, how's his regulation helped? I mean, California, you know, Prop 64, two years deep now, has it affected this? I hoped it would have. You know, I really did. I said, mm-hmm. if you're going to regulate, let's just regulate right. And Joe and I talked a little bit about yep. this. I'm sure you remember on the federal level, and there's all different debates on what, what's going to work. But what I can honestly say is, is the way we're regulating in like California and some other states, we're not breaking the back of this black market, either in the legitimate industry or definitely in the cartel black market, the, the dark side of it, unfortunately. And this stuff is in high demand. What would break the back of it? You would, you know, you really have to see something like regulation. Um, it's such a uniform level and the price it's such an accessible level that this stuff doesn't even have a way of even getting in you know and every state's doing something different and it doesn't matter where you sit on for or against cannabis use right or left take the politics out of it take the you know the stance on cannabis out of it let's just look at this from a realist standpoint of keeping our public safe and then you know preserving and protecting our waterways wildlife and wild lands and we got to do something different one of the things that frustrated me the most and I, and I talk about this in, in, uh, in that chapter, is we knew regulation was going to happen in California. We saw it coming five years. We saw it coming before we built the team and started the pilot program in 2013. Yeah. And me and Nate Arnold, now deputy chief, but the, same, the captain that co-built this thing and Mike Carrion, our chief, that blessed us to, to do this thing and try it um, in 2013 to see it would be effective. We knew this was coming because there was just such a demand in California's a weed state. Mediterranean climate, just like good wine, yeah. we're it, man. That's the reason they grow grapes up in the open. Yeah, right? Sonoma. And, yeah. <laughs> and so we said, if you guys are going to regulate, you know, regulate with legitimate 
industry, get those guys on track, make sure that stuff's organic, make sure it's documented, make sure it's taxed, whatever has to happen. And let's take some of that money and let's go after these cartels a little harder. Let's put more enforcement effort. Let's build up these teams. Let's get them more support and let's get reclamation money so we can have every grow site we go into completely sanitized, waterways, you know, restored, poisons picked up, hazmats removed, all the trash taken out. And let's definitely not make it easier for these guys. And so what we wanted to see, like enhanced penalties, like it was already a felony at the time to grow cannabis under the health and safety code in a trespass capacity, whether you were a cartel gunman or a white guy just yeah. growing weed in Co Park or up in Santa Cruz Mountains. And it actually got watered down to a misdemeanor. And then for a juvenile cartel grower, it got watered down to a, uh, an infraction. What's the reasoning behind doing that? You know what? We... I don't know for sure, but the only thing I can ascertain is just to get the just to get Prop 64 passed. It almost hmm. was one of those things where if we start showing certain part of the cannabis laws as felonies and we keep that, then it's going to turn a little bit of people away. Well, maybe we shouldn't regulate if there's still a felony to growing outdoors. So maybe there's you know a pre predisposition that it's bad. So they were rounding level. the edges a little bit. They were rounding the edges. And what was ironic is I had talked to legislative groups. I mean, one of the things about being the lieutenant of this new team that was cool was the outreach component. So besides doing missions and building the sniper unit and the oper- you know, and the team and canines and um, doing missions all over the state all year long and whatever else our department needed us to do, 30% of what I did was go out and talk about it, talk to grower groups, talk to political groups, talk to Conservate Rocky Mountain Elk as an example. Yep. Anybody that would listen that might run across this stuff like you and I do in a do-it-yourself hunt here in Montana, we run across something. And I educated and had a very graphic PowerPoint, very passionate about it. And I talked to a ton of legislative groups that were you know, all part of the politics of, of getting this in play. And I said, guys, if, if it's going to happen, don't do it this way. Let, let's, let's keep this bite on these trespass growers. And it went the opposite way. Um, unfortunately, and I don't know where the politics went. That's, I'm not that, I'm not part of that realm, but, um, we were disappointed to see that. And then we had to do a backpedal where, okay, all these other agencies said, well, we're not going to go after cartel cannabis trespass grows. It's a misdemeanor. There's not a jury or a prosecutor that's going to take it because weed's legal now. And we're going to risk our asses with those guys for what? So as an example, your old, our old County, Santa Cruz, that sheriff's department after Prop 64 said, nope. We're not doing it. Really? We won't, even, we won't even help you guys when, we, when Met comes to town or we find one. The Santa Cruz Mountains. That's so, a very interesting approach to take. It was. It was really effective. Out of sight, out of mind. Maybe the problem went away. Yeah, so, I'm just going to look <laughs> over here. Yeah. <laughs> Hear no evil. <laughs> head in the sand. Um, That's a long-term strategy for failure if I've ever heard one. Yeah, but but the in all fairness to our you know to our, our sheriff's guys over there, they were looking at the fact that the DAs and the judges were saying, yeah, we're not good luck. Oh, they're not going to prosecute it anyway. They're not going to prosecute it anyway. So I can see from an enforcement resource, why would you put that time in? Um, what we looked at though after Prop sixty four, we had the we kind of had you know the secret weapon. You know the silver bullet was we had our environmental laws, which now made it a felony again. So if they poison water, used a banned poison right? Diverted a creek, killed a deer, all of that stuff, diverted a waterway, littered a waterway. Now you got your felonies back. Now you got your heavy misdemeanors back. So DAs were starting to understand. And I would talk to the California, like the California District Attorneys Association. They're fed up. They're like, we want to keep going after trespass growers. How do we do this? Mm. No one has a way. The, the, the laws are weak. And I'd give them a template in these presentations and say, look, guys, if you find this crime, and I guarantee you'll find a water diversion, a stream alteration, and water pollution just for them to grow and everyone you do right i said if you find that and we'll help you 
we'll, we'll help you guys document that either ourselves or train other people to do it. We'll get this crime going. And that's what we were doing. We kept catching guys on the Met front. We kept giving them all of the template for the environmental um, codes. And that's how they get their felonies. And the, the last gunfight we got into before I retired was kind of a crazy one. And it was in Santa Cruz Mountains, Highland Way, real close to, remember, you know, Demonstration Forest, yeah. where I learned to mountain bike, right? I mean, and Soquel Creek runs right in that base. And without giving away the whole story, that was one that over the years, the last three years that I was operational with the guys, we called that Asshole Alley because it was just one of those places that those guys were working with impunity. No one was enforcing it. So they were always pulling knives on our dogs. They were always pulling guns. They were always fighting us, you know, if they weren't with guns. It was always a fist to cuffs and a beat down. You know, we were in it. Um, so when we were having more and more of these missions and they were getting closer and closer to more gunfights happening, largely, and the only thing that kept it from happening, honestly, Andy, was great canines at this time. Canine you Phoebe. The meat you know, the meat missile, man. <laughs> you know, the fire and forget for, for yeah. biscuit, you know. And now we had those, and so they were keeping us from, from having to engage, and they're actually keeping those guys alive, too, in the process. But that last case was another gunfight, and he was a deportable felon, and he was here illegally, and he was known, you know, in other grow sites and all that kind of classification. Um, and we were the only ones on that hill. And we didn't have help from the sheriff's agency over there. We had some Santa Clara guys that came over with their canine and helped us. But that was strictly a fish and wildlife run mission in one of the most pristine areas left in Santa Cruz County. And we were on our own to handle it crazy. because of the way the law was structured. So the, the end result is if we're regulating, regulate right. And definitely, I think we can all agree, no matter where we sit on the cannabis spectrum, for or against, nobody wants to see these trespass growers that aren't even from here. They're not even supposed to be here. We're talking about, you know, a huge, huge environmental impact and public safety threat. Yeah, it's almost a separate issue, it seems like. It is. It absolutely is. And we and everyone's starting to see that. And it's it's kind of cool. And, and I'm very appreciative to talk to gentlemen like yourself and given your background and the mutual areas we've come from and the mutual jobs we've done to help spread the message and being retired even back on agency with the team and tell their story of all the good work they're doing and, and what we're up against, you know. No one, yeah. no one wants to see it, so. Would you guys find the same... Uh, I don't know what the, the term would be for them, not growers or the armed guards. Would you have repeat offenders on grow sites <laughs> yeah. that you would encounter over and over and over again? We would. We would. And we would. It's like, hey, Bob, put it, the gun it's down. Cr it's again. crazy, man. We would. <laughs> between our NorCal teams and SoCal teams and guys, you know, kind of in the Silicon Valley. And, you know, the one thing about the Met team is when we started running independent, the structure was super cool because it was done in such a way that kind of like the SoCal model. You know, work directly for the top, mm -hmm. be able to go anywhere without district boundaries. In this case, our world was the state of California. So we went everywhere and we educated in the process. But more importantly, we could go where we had to go. We could integrate patrol, mainline guys when we needed to. We could jump in with other agencies. Um, and so we would see more of a, get a, a bigger, clearer picture of who was doing the biggest activity on the cartel front. And there were some, you know, I mean, heinous guys, guys with murder raps. You know, they were gunmen for, you know, uh, particular cells, um, narcotics trafficking, all kinds of uh, assault charges. And we'd have a canine deployment, get this guy, you know, maybe bit in custody, doing his thing, get him out of circulation, gets deported. A week later, he's in another grow and another team's canine gets him or they come close to and going to And you're not joking. I'm not a joking. A week later. No, it, it is. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's a week, sometimes less. So the faucet um, is almost impossible to turn off when it, it comes it's to It's impossible to turn off. And something, you know, you get the whole border control issue coming up. And one thing I talk about, um, uh, again, in the, new, in, the, in the new work is 
debriefing some of these upper level guys that we got on other crimes. And they're telling us very candidly, you know, because they can take a little bit lesser hit on the, on the penalty and the, and the time they're going to do in prison is, you know, why do we keep seeing your guys like coming through an open door? I mean, what's going on, you know, with the, what do you, with the border and you know, how much, you know, real, real stoppage is there? Is there a stopgap? And they just laugh and they go, no, 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 man. <laughs> they, they call it like a speed bump on I five between what they call. Yeah. But they got awesome shocks. They got awesome they shocks, man. They, the they Raptor it or yeah. the F-150 soup it, you know, yeah. with big Bill Steens and big Fox. Um, but man, the, the, the crazy part is they look at it literally as a bump in the road. And because it's, you know, four to $7,000 for these guys to get their tier one grow or gunman or methamphetamine producer, that's a drop in the bucket for what yeah. these guys are going to make money-wise. They just keep shipping across. And so, you know, the, the last thing we learned, um, especially toward the middle of team development and, and getting to know these, how these cells operate, they're just like, yeah, we don't really think of California as anything but Mexico North. We don't agree that it was ever, you know, divided. We didn't lose anything. We just have that speed bump you guys call the border and we get across it and we, you know, have everything set up in geographical areas and the rest of the country the same way and we work it like a business model you know and that's they're very you know there's wow. there's some structure to it man and they do it efficiently and is they, there a solution to that we just need to tackle it harder you know and i think it's i think on this particular if you just take the uh, the tainted cannabis issue the trespass growth thing that we specialize in um you think of the first book coming out in 2010 you think of our agency doing the first game warden reality show wild justice that a lot of us on the team were featured on for like mm -hmm. three seasons the cool thing about doing that, as, as much as it can be arduous with film crews and security reasons, and, you know, you got to weigh the outreach benefit versus, yep. you know, the security benefit. But at least that put the world attention on what game wardens really do. So we got the recruitment. We had thousands of applicants again. We got special forces guys like yourself go, that love the outdoors and hunt going... I didn't know they had a spec ops team. I've been looking for this my whole life. I, I need, I'm, you know, I'm in my thirties, <laughs> yeah. you know, I did eight years on the teams. Yep. I was in team one or whatever. And what do know, I do now? Oh, yeah. that's what I do now. That's what I do now. And so we got great guys coming over, you know, and, and, and becoming game wards in California and other States. So that, that whole thing was really cool. And it actually exposed some of those cases we showed on TV were these raids with those guys I mentioned mm -hmm. right after nine 11. Um, and everyone was shocked by it. And then we did, um, besides that, we did well, Patriot Profiles, that Life of Duty NRA TV series that Rick Stewart produces. And he did a lot of stuff with Team Six and mm -hmm. great stuff with SEAL teams. Um, he found out about my first book through Wayne LaPierre from the NRA, reached out and said, you know, I have a documentary deal. If your department wants to do it, we'll just tell the story. And he did it on the reclamation issue in Silicon Valley. And that got some really good attention as well as the TV series we were doing. But my point is, Fast forward to now, 10 years later, the new book comes out, Retirement. I'm telling a new story that's even more in-depth, trying to get more awareness on it. And we're at the NRA you know, annual meeting in, in April, and Ollie Norris, an endorser of the book, and he's saying, you guys got to be out here. This message is crazy. I hunt. <laughs> I fought the war on drugs. That I'm not aware how crazy this is. Yeah. Right? And he's saying, basically, get out here and talk to people. And here we are in Indianapolis, and everyone's picking up books, and they're like, man, Lieutenant, I had no idea this was going on. 10 years, Andy, we've been talking about it. It's been on TV. It's been in books. Yeah. It's been in, you know. Very, I had no idea either. Right. I was focused elsewhere. Yeah. But I also had no idea that this type of activity, I mean, what you're talking about seems structured. It seems nuanced. Yeah. I'd imagine that their chemical sourcing is as easy for them as the human 
uh, sourcing across the border. It's, it's easy. If it's simple for them to get a person across, I'd imagine it's simple for them to get those chemicals across. Yep. And that's and that's the only stopgap is they just have to bring the chemicals because they can't get them here. But yeah. everything else is supplied. The well, guns, sounds, the, the way you described it, it seems like it'd probably be pretty easy to disguise it as something else or yeah. just put it inside of something else. How tactically savvy were they when you guys would go up against them? It was a mix. The ones like in, say, Asshole Alley that I talk about over there, their, their savvy tactics were there for sure. Um, and the same guys, I think, that were the ambushers on us back in 05 mm-hmm. when we did not have a team developed and we were undermanned under you know under gun that day um the santa cruz county one in 2017 was still the sierra azul open space authority property but it was just on the santa cruz side yep so when we went into that we started to see how aggressive they were and how camouflage and field crap booby traps things like punji pits you know i mean which is old school it's old school but effective but effective right and you see all of this kind of stuff developing and then when i see where their camps are set up you know in very shaded very fortified where they're in the dark all day long yep they have the high ground in order to get to them you got to go through their main grow there's no way to sneak up they're against a cliff but they haven't escaped you know, hatch out the Mac. They have a chopped AK, you know, kind of lying low out the door that looks right at the main trails you got to come into. So a team that hasn't done a lot of this, just running into this stuff for the first time, it's a melee. And then seeing in that last gunfight we were involved in where our canine helped keep my lead handler and all of us, you know, safe that day, the two guys that were heavily armed at the top of the mountain we hadn't got to yet through the growth site, they had bugged out, but all their weaponry was there and their fortified position was like, Okay. Yeah. These are these are the these are the tactic types. These are the guys that would have had to be handled. Even if we had gone into it, it would have been a challenge. Yeah. You know, if we had made it that far up. And it would have been a long day looking at what we were gonna walk into because they had the tactical savviness to set up their field craft geographically and they had tons of cover and concealment. The same thing we saw when, when my partner was shot in 05. Where are they learning that from? A little bit of a little bit of Mexican military, the Los Zetas, you know, who mm. were trained by our special forces in the early nineties and then kind of turned corrupt and become became their own gang. Some of those guys are embedded in with these groups just to oversee these grow sites to make sure that, you know, people aren't within the organization on the take in case there's a rival, you know, cell to cell. And, you know, we're fairly certain that when we were ambushed in 2005, that was one of those guys or two of those guys of the two gunmen that were there, at least two that we know of. One that was, that, that you know, we basically neutralized and the other one that slipped out. But, you know, one of them had shot my partner. Um, we don't see that in every single grow site, fortunately. We always find weapons. We always find knives and guns and things like that. But, you know, eight, nine out of ten times, they don't want to take on, you know, a tactical unit yeah. that, that, that's doing their thing. They're getting in stealthy. The dogs are good. You know, we all hunt and fish, so we, we like to sneak around. I mean, we're getting tight at what we do. And they're giving up and they're running or they're giving up. But it's those aggressive crews that are, are holding their ground. And for whatever reason, it just might be the mindset of that particular part of the organization. I tell you what, though, you add high ground with just a little bit of tactical savvy and some firepower. They got you. And you're in trouble. Yeah. I mean, since you know the deal. Since the days of sticks and stones, if I can get right. a little bit of elevation over the top mm-hmm. of you, you're going to have a substantial problem. Yep. What year did you guys start rolling body armor? Oh, man. I had body armor on patrol right out of the academy. So I was running like level 3A Kevlar, you know, under. Soft or hard? It was all soft. Yeah, that's not stopping a rifle Yeah, round. that's not stopping a rifle <laughs> round. That's a nine millimeter maybe. For stop, sure. stop my 40. Yep. But we started running plates um, right after the 05 shootout. Yep. Right after the 05 shootout. And they were heavy. 
But then by, you know, by the time we were forming this unit up, you know, oh, stuff, they got better. The technology oh, man, advanced. got great. And, yeah. and working a lot with ex-team guys like yourself and current team guys and, and what you guys were using. Um, and having a 20-year veteran of the SEAL teams on on our team that I could pick and bring into yep. patrol who went into being a game warden after his time on the teams. Um, you know, obviously having that and, and looking back on his experiences and um Frog, who he's called, codenamed in the book, he, he had a lot to contribute to what we should and shouldn't do. And then we all brought kind of something to that whole piece of the pie. But finally, when we started to get the funds and the support um, to get the good stuff, by the nice time... ceramics, get some oh, nods. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We were running all good MBGs, a lot of <laughs> yeah. night ops. Yeah. Um, we were running, you know, and I, I mean, there's some of this level four ceramic plate. It's less than two pounds of oh, plate. amazing. Ventilated, nice. We can piecemeal them on the kit. Yep. Did you um, encounter any, uh, or did you ever find any night vision from the growers? We did. Rudimentary stuff. Probably towards the tail end, I would imagine. Towards the tail end, a lot of single handheld yeah, scopes, a lot of monos. Um, didn't see anything more higher end that you or I would be familiar with, you yeah. know, kind of state-of-the-art stuff. Um, but what we did start to see about five years ago was start of body armor. They were starting to get their own body armor. And where they were getting it, who knows? Internet. Internet. I mean, to be honest, if you have yeah. a credit card and a you can buy a Wi-Fi connection. You can buy get, a used, yeah, yeah. yeah you Unfortunately. Know, second you chance can. or whatever. Yeah. But we would see these body armor plates, bro, that were set up where they wouldn't wear the whole vest because so hot when they're, you know, out there harvesting or tending or whatever. But they would put it in kind of a satchel and carry it like a satchel bag where they can like move it around. Hmm. It was just, just weird stuff. Wouldn't be really effective, but um, we were seeing some pretty strange tactics of how they were adapting to being very physical, working in the heat of the day. And then trying to ha always having a long rifle on their shoulder or having a pistol in the hip. Um, you know, everything from some of the counter canine tactics. You know, they really started to realize, man, there are some really, really cool dogs stepping up. And it started with our canine Phoebe, who, um, you know, and I know uh, a mutual uh, team friend of ours, Mike Ritland, when we talked on uh, Mike Drop. And, yeah. he, and he first had his phone conversation with me to hear about this because Terry had introduced us, Hewan. And, and Mike said, wait a minute. Um, What's this dog? How many bites did she have? 116 bites? <laughs> Apprehension bites? In California? Yeah. And then I said, yeah, Mike. And she had like, she had like 800, 900 other arrests where the guys gave up. And she, she died at 13 of leukemia, but she worked till almost 12. And he goes, well, we got to talk. I don't know many war dogs that have yeah. ever done that, man, you know, overseas. And I go, and, and, you know, the whole thing was, and a female, you know, you guys really favor some of these female Belgian males. And I said, you know, we find it's like the Goldilocks dog, man. You don't quite want a hard war dog, but you don't <laughs> want a light, light biter. You want them just right. And yeah. she became, man, bro, she became one of those amazing dogs. You know, as friendly as my yellow lab or, you know, your hunting dog. But people started to realize other agencies, but also the bad guy side went, man, we don't want to see these guys, man, because they don't let us run away anymore. And if they can't catch us with their running teams, these dogs are hitting us at 30 miles an hour and they're going under brush and they're not overheating and we never hear them coming. They're almost impossible to escape. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how good those dogs elevated our game um, and kept us safe. And after Phoebe kind of set the tone, the U.S. You know, Forest Service, BLM, our sheriff's buddies at Santa Clara, we got them kind of tuned up and, and helped get them their first dog. And when all that started to happen, man, it was just a, a beautiful thing from our effectiveness on the uh, bad side of it was the growers knew that. So they would start to adapt their tactics to, okay, well, under rules of engagement, if I got this dog coming at me, but I'm not pulling a gun on an officer, I don't think they think or blah, blah, blah. It isn't a threat to them. I'm going to take that bite. 
and I'm going to pull that 8 to 10 inch fixed blade and I'm going to go for that jugular on that dog. And we lost some dogs yeah, on the federal that. side. And we almost, we came close to losing some of our dogs. But, you know, fortunately, by the good graces, we didn't. Um, Phoebe was one of those dogs, man, that, you know, she was an NFL concussion protocol probably five times in her career. I mean, she had been beat by rocks and, you know, stabbed by stuff, but never fatally um, shot at, but never hit. Um, but fortunately she made it to live her entire life, yeah. you know, but, but a lot of dogs don't. So, and these guys are onto that. So we're, you know, just like anything from a, from a team standpoint, we're constantly evolving our tactics to play cat and mouse and adjust to where they're starting to get a leg up. I tell you what, it's a bad day for somebody who, if I arrive on target and they think that I don't care about the dog as mm-hmm. much as another teammate and they think that they're going to get away with something, Thank that's you. a for shitty day for that's them. That's a shitty day for them because <laughs> there are brothers and sisters, man. For sure. They are amazing. Those dogs yep. save lives on both yeah. sides of the coin too, like you mentioned. They the do. Beginning. Yeah. They do. Tell me about the sniper program because I know you're huge into yeah. uh, to the long guns. Yeah. The um, And it, honestly, again, if I were to think fishing <laughs> game, game warden, I'm not yeah. going to associate a sniper team with that. It just, yeah, on just, the initial thoughts, you're like, what? It doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> add up. Yeah. It's like, okay, what are these guys trying to do? Who are, where are they trying well, obviously to obviously have fun. That makes sense yeah. to me. What I is, get that completely. Yeah. The fun element for sure. Right. Cause we're shooters, right? You're a shooter. I know. Um, the way that came about was we already had people in play that were trained. Obviously I had frog, you know, back from, yep. he was a nine year active when he was on active nine years, he was a sniper all those years, 11 in the reserves, trained, you know, snipers in the SEAL teams, had him. I was a trained sniper. I was teaching sniping now. I was teaching basic and advanced schools with Santa Clara as part of their cadre because I had worked into certain good relationships and just done a lot of it with them. And we had two other post-certified basic and advanced snipers trained within agency already before Med even started. So we already kind of had the guys ready to go. And we had another young sniper to the team eventually later to have five on gun. But um, that was one of those things that as soon as the pilot program in 2013 went six weeks out of a three-month program and the chief saw what we were doing, just documenting what we were doing, having all the guys on the team every day, working the dogs, moving all over the state, and actually documenting the stuff we weren't before and seeing the magnitude of the problem, putting up the numbers of plants, eradicated, water diversions taken out, um, guns seized, bad guys caught, you know, tons of waste taken out. They're like, okay, you don't need to justify this. We're not even going to let it go three months. By the end of this year, you guys will build, come up with the selection criteria and the training needed, the testing. January 1st, 2014, you guys are full speed operational, four headquarters out of patrol, make it happen. That was great, but it was also surprising because we're in the middle of an operational test season. So we thought, okay, we got three months and we got to get our crap together. Um, And I had, I had, you know, I'd been the bird whispering in the air. I said, you know, this is the time that we should have that sniper unit. And for this reason, and not only for Met, but for Overwatch and the high-risk warrants we're doing for commercial wildlife by bus and everything we're roping in on collateral duty on active shooter. You know, if we have another terrorism event, you know, we're Santa Clara, the military, Moffett Field, Sunnyvale, uh, you know, San Jose, Fresno, and they need another train gun that knows the protocol that can integrate with any sniper unit. This is the way the world's going. I mean, take our personal needs of the team out and the chiefs agreed. They said, okay, what would it take? I said, well, you've got the guys. Um, It's not going to take much more money. We're already running. We've been an M14 agency forever. Mm -hmm. You know, we had 144 mil spec battle M14s that we got from the awesome gun. Oh man, Andy, it was good. 
you hit it, man. I, yeah. I liked my, um, I had a, you know, um, a, you know, 19, I think it was 58. I, I researched the serial number <laughs> on, on my Springfield. We had them for our, my first two pre-911 platoons. They were yeah. awesome. Weren't they great? Yeah, they were great. Yeah, just, just bulletproof. Yeah. But as accurate as all hell too. Oh, they were crazy for just a standard carbine, yeah. you know, not even, not even accurized. Um, we really liked them. We had a, we adjunct the 144 for our remainder officers with the M1A scouts. Mm-hmm. Lesser quality, but we could get them to work right. Um, 18-inch barrels. We chopped the 24-inch barreled um, or 22-inch barreled M14s to 18, recrowned them, made them as compact as possible. When the Met thing got started, um, as we started to integrate, a handful of us were given the blessing to put Veltor stocks on them, put aim points, trim them up, thin them down. Still big, still heavy. Mm. You know, not, not a tight, tight, tight-knit brush gun, but hey, bulletproof will always go bang, so we ran them. And then we needed to do something different um, we just needed, we needed light systems and optics. We just needed a, a complete package. And we, uh, we tested a bunch of weapons, a bunch of us on the firearms committee for our, for our agency back around 2006. And, you know, it was POF, it was FN, it was HK, it was Bravo company. It was everybody. We tested five, five, six stayed with three Oh eight, seven, six, two, which we were kind of leaning towards for the bigger animal issues mm-hmm. and for the brushy penetrating conditions that we needed on, on met stuff. Yep. Um, and SIG 716 was just out of the gate. It wasn't quite fully ready for production, as good as that system is. So it entered the testing. Frank DeSoma's POF, the P308 from um, the piston driver out of Arizona, and then FN came mm-hmm. into our bid. Um, you know, HK didn't want to do a smaller package with Cerakoted color. We had a pretty tight, you know, pretty tight setup of what we wanted on this kit. And as we went through the um, the testing of all those weapons, um, the SIG unfortunately didn't make it as well as it shot. You know, it, after two failures in certain areas, it just didn't make bid. Frank's gun came in. It ran a 6,000-round torture test. Fine. It made it. And then the FN was the next highest, you know, expensive, the, the more expensive gun by a couple hundred for the package that we would have went to had the POF not made it. So we ended up with the POF. Because we had these guns with those Rock 5R barrels on them, they were getting pretty good accuracy with good load, with good ammunition. They were getting one MOA, sometimes better if you were doing your part on a short, you know, fourteen point five inch barrel. That's good. Compact. It had the weight still, but it was much more M4 sized. And because we didn't, we didn't have the ability with an agency to like, okay, now that we have a sniper team, we can go to Accuracy International, or we could go to FN, or we could go to HK, and you know, we we had to stay within the gun that we had selected because it was a very involved bureaucratic process to even go to the POF as a standard patrol gun um, over the M14, given the cost of these weapons and given the state spending concerns at the time. I mean, legislatively, we had to justify everything we did in politics just to get the gun over to an AR platform. Um, So we had these POFs working for patrol. They were working for MET. Great. Um, And all I knew I had to do was just optics, night vision. We We knew we needed a sniper gun that was compact. Because we hike a lot, we go in. You know, we could be at fourteen thousand feet below Whitney one day. We could be on the deserts of Santa Cruz or the the coast, mm-hmm. down in the Imperial Desert. You know, on the border, always in brushy, thick stuff. Um, I knew when we built it that we would want those guys on a long gun, a scoped optic gun for DMO or sniper use to be able to integrate into entry and use that gun as one platform. So it was kind of unique. Um, so we just used the POF and we upgraded to Mark IV Leopolds. We use TMRs, you know, just like a mill dot train yep. on mills. It's just easy. We don't we don't go any more crazy than that right now. 
Um, and then, you know, have a night vision capability on that we can get on that gun and, and they've worked well. What kind so, of distances you guys shoot to or train to? Um, we will shoot to a thousand, but we will really, the biggest thing is 600 yards, yeah. you know, for a little platform like that yeah. at the slower velocity when you're, when you're chopped under 16 inches, torso hits at 600, you can do with that little gun, which is, which is really comfortable. Plus um, it's probably going to be tough for you guys to get even 600 yards of visibility in some of these environments. It, it's tough. We've gone where we've had to, had to observe a little further, yeah. um, but mostly it's just overwatch, you yeah. know, and using good optics. And then, you know, we're, we, we started to play with um, the 338, you know, um, Santa Clara went to the 338 Lapu on an AI chassis and, you know, they, they took all their 308s that were buzz tails and went to AIs mm-hmm. for their 308s. And we, we said, well, if we had to go to something really big and go really long distance and we were covering a lot of territory, um, we'd go to a bolt gun. But really, we need to stay with a gas gun for, for the mobility and the, the, you know, basically the versatility because yeah. um, of where we're working. So, it, but it was good. It was good to have that. And um, of all the deployments we had um, on Delta team and my guy, you know, and I see the team periodically and still talk to them and hear what's going on there. The sniper team's active, you know, it's good. they're out, they're out covering people's asses every, you know, every other mission. It's cool. It's a good capability to have. And it feels it great is. to know that there's a long gun overwatching you. <laughs> it is right. <laughs> and you know, from like say a Santa Cruz mountains, a lot of times we just hike in blind yeah. in the early days. And, and granted a lot of those sites, man, are, it's going to be hard to get overwatch, but just knowing if you have a, you know, a long gunner, and a DMO yeah, guy helps. in two stacks and you can peel them off real quick when you have that to cover an open field, even for just a hundred yard gap, when you feel naked out there, it, it totally helps. And we didn't have that till, uh, till we built this team in, in 2014. So I was very grateful to our administration for letting us do it. It's cool that they saw the benefit. They did. I can see some administrations pushing back. Yeah. Yeah. And it was timing. Yeah. I mean, it was certainly timing with who was there believing of a, in us at the time, you know, and I talked a little bit about this on Joe's, but um, when you got guys like Mike Carrion, you know, who knew me from the academy, mentored me as an instructor, I taught with him on the side, and, you know, you have middle-level administrators that came from the teams or had a special operations background and care about the environment, they don't see it as too foreign. And honestly, we kind of soften the blow of it being unconventional because they just got used <laughs> to us being so <laughs> unconventional for five years, so yeah. they're like, okay, what now? Yeah. Oh, a sniper team, oh, okay. Tell me, justify it. How much is this going to cost? How much yeah. is this going to cost? And, yeah. And that was the other thing. You, you just hit it on the head with cost. That will sink a program oh, yes, in, it will. In, in our very thrift little agency. But we had, you know, we had like the, um, a great foundation in California, California Wildlife Officers Foundation. They're called KWOF. And we have our retired chief Nancy on it. We have our retired director, Ryan Broderick, on it. We have a lot of, you know, um, hardcore conservationists with resources that put up a lot of money to buy new canines when you know, dogs retire, canines when they got to go to surgery if they're injured, gear. I mean, that organization really made the sniper program possible by night vision, um, optics, you know, when we went to scoped optics and finding, you know, everything from building the right cleaning kit, you know, in a Pelican yeah. case and having that turnkey kit where you can dial in and go. Yeah, full sweep. Full sweep, different ammo, all of that. So organizations like KWOF helping us out because um, we didn't have the money. Yeah. They got to come from, from outside supporters. Um, and we had private donors too, that, that really helped out with that. So, um, it made it happen. And once it's in, it's in, everybody sees the benefits. It's just getting over that hurdle to, you know, amazing how it comes down to dollars and cents, dollars and cents, man. And someone saying, okay, you're not that crazy cowboy. We believe in you enough to like, say, let's do this. Don't prove me wrong. And and so we were, we were whispered on the, don't fuck me on this on the way out of the office. Yeah. (laughs) 
I swear I'm, to God, I'll kill you. <laughs> I'm two years from retirement. I've invested everything in trusting you. Don't let me down. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about your new book. Yeah, this is um, your copy right here, bud. This is Hidden War. It's um, just came out in April. And it's, uh, it's just, just been a fun one to put together because it's about the specialized met team, which is all game wardens, all the brothers, you know, that, that I got to, you know, groom up and be part of and learn from and all those different things, um, since the 2013 pilot program. And it really goes into missions that happened before that, that led to the justification of why this team was built, how it was built. It tells a lot of war stories. It goes into some of the gunfights, the canine deployments, and just some of the crazy environmental things we've seen, but it goes into the brotherhood, the bonds, you and I love and remember highlights of our yep. careers, um, the politics, internal and external, and moving forward. You know, what do we look at nationally as a country, you know, for everything from uh, sovereignty, public, public safety protection, environmental purity. You know, it goes into all those things. So um, fun read. Interesting uh, to write and relive some of those moments, as you can imagine. Yeah, and uh, and it's 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 doing well, and people are uh, very well received right now. We're lucky to have both sides of the spectrum. I mean, and the legitimate cannabis industry is all about this. They've, um, they've well, they have to see the illegal grows as a threat as well. They hate it. And the other thing is, the ones that are doing it organically and pride themselves on not stealing water, loving their wildlife, having these really you know dialed in grow sites, and there's a percentage of growers doing it right. And, and protecting wildlife as avidly as we do. And they become allies. Um, and they've actually termed our team their Earth Warriors, which is a different kind of name, you know, you don't really think of. But That come, sounds very Santa Cruz-y. If I'm Santa Cruz-y? <laughs> yeah, it would be, it'd be Santa Cruz meets Humboldt <laughs> and, ev- sure. and everything in the middle, you know? Yeah. So, um, so that's kind of cool because we really needed to make sure um, when we wrote this, uh, or when I wrote it and the publishers, I, 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 I made it clear, I go, look, it's not an anti-cannabis book. It cannot be seen as that because it's not. It's an anti-environmental crime, anti-threat to public safety book as it affects every American, not just California, but stories from California of how it affects the nation. So, yeah. Did you ever think you were going to be an author? No. <laughs> I never did. I and never now you got did. two under your belt. You got a third planned? Um, I don't know yet. I don't I know yet. I was listening, just finishing up the documentary with Joe the other day. I'm like, you have this documentary aspirations. I heard the word producer come out of your mouth. Oh my what gosh. What are you getting yeah. into? Yeah, it's, <laughs> you know what? Um, the whole cannabis thing has just, yeah, it's just, it's gone in a direction, brother, that I would have never imagined. Yeah. You know, if you said in 1992, in 15 years, you're going to be co-developing and working with a specialized unit, doing helicopter assaults and canines and running just you know, more special operations, military SWAT style than, and not doing the traditional stuff anymore. I'd said, you're crazy. That's not going to happen. I, I, you know, the, the mind wasn't ready for that at the time. Um, and it's interesting when you ask about being an author, I never planned to write anything from the standpoint of a book until after that first shooting happened in 05, because I was asked by people that were saying, you know, what happened was I wrote a paper for the department on a debrief of that incident. And I written it, you know, it was easy to read like a story, but it got into all the breakdowns where we could improve what we need to do differently. And when that came out and people in conservation publications that were working very closely with our agency, they said, you know, there's a lot more stories you guys have had since this came out. People need to know this. And, you know, no one in DEA, you know, no one in drug agencies are really documenting anything from this and to come from a, go- a game warden's perspective that's really different yeah it is but everybody sure. but everybody sees it on the environmental side so that's what prompted the first book um when we got that book deal and you know nancy at the time was our chief and i broke the news i said yeah i have a really really good opportunity 
how do we do this? Because obviously I'm with an agency umbrella, still working. She goes, hey, I'm really proud. This is great. You know, let's just uh, look it over and make sure we have the right pictures and, and do what we got to do. Um, and that started some of the awareness and kind of led to this coming out later. You know, it's but awesome to get that kind of support from your organization. It is. It is. I feel honestly blessed, man, and kind of surreal that it happened the way it did. And again, like we, like I said before, I think things were meant to happen for a reason at certain times and where I'm the kind of guy that, you know, wants to overdo everything when, when there's an issue out there. And I know I'm, again, like-minded, right? <laughs> yep. if, if there's something we can do, <laughs> we're going to do it better. And, you yep. know, if it's an issue that needs to be handled right now, especially for our wildlife, I want to do it yesterday. I don't want to wait five years for bureaucracy, you know, and I think that frustrated a lot of my leadership. But having the right people that believed in us at the right time um, when it was kind of a, a breaking point that we're either we're, we're all in or we're all out. Because if we stay halfway in the middle, people are going to die. No exaggeration. We're going to get hurt. Yep. We got lucky when my partner survived. That was, that was shocking, actually, with what we encountered that day in 05. So that being said, um, we got lucky with the right people at the right time. And when we had that opportunity, we that built the team knew 110, go until we're, we drop, man. We yep. got to do the best we could. And I feel really lucky that... You know, knowing that was the last five or six years of my career when this thing got greenlit, it was a five-year plan to really make it successful and, more importantly, tell the story. And um, thank you very much for being part of telling the story and being a conservationist out there, brother, and, and helping this because this is this affects all of us, and it's good to have you on our side. It's my pleasure, man. I'm so stoked that we got to sit down and talk. <laughs> Super cool, I'll yeah. let you close it out, man. Anything you want to close with? Um, just want to say thanks, and um, I want to give a shout-out right now to all of my brothers and sisters on the Met team out there right now going hardcore every day of the summer. Um, they're working up here right now. Season's open. Season's open. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and not that uh, they're not working the other days, but now they got a lot of hunters out in the field, probably more than normal. Yeah. And one thing, if anyone is interested in the book, it's on Amazon. All of them are, um, you can also get signed copies. Just hit me on Instagram or go to my website, which is John Norris, J O H N N O R E S.com. And I'll put all that up on the that, notes that'd be well. cool. Cause yep. what a lot of people have wanted is they're like, yeah, I know you're not going to be on the East coast for a while. I'd really like a signed copy. I work that out. Yep. We just ship them. People pay a few extra bucks for shipping with yeah, personal message. Um, if people have questions about being a game warden going into the profession, they're not sure since a lot of these good podcasts with you and our mutual friends have happened, a lot of new game warden interests, man. It's so cool Isn't to it see. Beautiful. So I am answering questions 24 seven right now on Instagram of just guiding people in the right direction. Um, reach out anytime for any of that. And, um, yeah, we are doing some, some documentary film stuff related to this topic. Um, producing, it's no big deal. It's yeah. Just <laughs> somehow I got roped into that. I heard that. So. I'm like, Oh, he's going to pay. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, I got him. <laughs> he did it. Yeah. No, Hollywood. On, on, on that. Yeah. <laughs> Hollywood Norris. What's he doing? Yeah. Um, but that thing I talked a little bit on Joe's cause it just, just really kind of blown up was uh, altered state. Yep. And it's really a, a documentary film. I mean, kind of like a dust of glory, you know, if you think of something like that, um, on the environmental issues of cannabis as they relate on all levels in California. So embedded with law enforcement teams, legitimate growers, outlaw growers, uh, all the environmental issues, the politics, and some pretty crazy stuff I'm not really going to talk about yet. Yeah, save some surprise. That's never been seen, and stuff we're seeing through filming the last year and a half. It'll be good stuff. That's awesome. I yeah. look forward to it. Thanks for the time, man. Thanks, Thanks for man. making the drive. Yeah. Hell yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Do me a favor. If you have a chance, go to iTunes and write a review or rate the podcast. If you think it sucks, write that it sucks. If you think it's awesome, write that you think it's awesome. But take the time, if you would, and just go click on the stars, whatever stars you think the podcast should be rated at. And then if you want to take it a step further, you want to fly the flag, clearedhotpodcast.com 
hit the shop tab. You're going to find some cleared hot t-shirts. And if you wear one of those cleared hot t-shirts, hopefully somebody will say, hey, what's that? And you'll say, it's a podcast. You should check it out. And that's really all I have for this week.